to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson, and uh, this episode is with my great mate, Charlie Clawson. Uh, if you listen to my other podcast, TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, you will know Charlie. He is the co-host of that podcast. But when we recorded this episode of Willosophy, uh, he was not. Uh, we had to have a little break for a while because of a job that he was doing, but he is now back doing the podcast. Uh, so if you want to check us out talking about Batman and prison and, you know, time travel and those sort of things, you can listen to TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, or you can listen to my other podcast that I did in the meantime, FOFOP, F-O-F-O-P, but you can find both of those at TOFOP.com. Uh, there is a great episode uh, that we did for Christmas with Charlie's mum, uh, if you look that up. It's a bonus episode um, called Popa Palooza, and uh, it's with Charlie's mum, and it basically is kind of a philosophy episode uh, trapped inside a TOEFOP. So I think if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll definitely enjoy listening to Charlie talk to his mum on that episode of TOEFOP. I won't say too much. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. I'm publishing all the original ones, and then uh, we'll get on with the new episodes. Uh, there is one new episode up, of course, uh, the first one, the John Safran episode. I'll put all the old ones up, and then uh, we'll get on with the new ones in the new year. So you can check out my show, uh, Illuminati, at the Sydney Opera House, January 19th. Uh, there are still some tickets available for that. And then Free Will, my new show, my new tour, uh, March, April, uh, will be in Adelaide in the Garden of Unearthly Delights, then at the Brisbane Comedy Festival, and then at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Um, if you want to come to the one of the cheap nights, uh, you know, Tight Us Tuesday, or maybe the, uh, you want to come to a sat- sat- Saturday matinee, there are, there are a few shows that tend to sell out quickly. So if you want one of those specialist shows, uh, now is the time to book tickets for the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Uh, anyway. Enough of this uh, nonsense. I hope you enjoy this episode with Charlie. Cheers. Welcome to uh, Willosophy, and uh, my guest on Willosophy, I'm actually going to, this is what I'm doing now, is I'm getting the guests to introduce themselves, because I think that's a good place to start. Uh, Who are you? Uh, My name is Charlie Clawson, birth name Charles, uh, sort of uh, casualized to Charlie. Uh, Only a few people call me Charles, some people call me Chuck. But you can call me Charlie. Thank you, Chuck. I will call you (laughs) Chuck for the rest of this. Uh, Who calls you Charlie? Um, nearly everyone. I don't. Very few people call me Charles. Not even my mum calls me Charles. She's she's Charlie as well. Yeah, everyone's Charlie. Were it's you weird. Charlie as a kid? Yep. So you've always been Charlie. Always been Charlie. So why do they fucking call you Charles? I don't know. I guess because traditional traditional names are what you you, you don't call your son Johnny. You call him Jonathan, right? Right. Well, I suppose I'm William, and they yeah, called me yeah. William. I don't know why I'm... Why are you throwing stones in this glass house? <laughs> really, I'm attacking my parents. <laughs> why didn't they just call me Will? And then I wouldn't get those smart-ass people on the internet going, your real name's William, so you should spell it with two L's. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why if I was named after anyone, because you're your grandfather. Yeah, right? two grandfathers, so William and James. I don't think there's any Charleses in either my mum or my... My dad's family. So. You were a big family, though. How many kids? Uh, nine kids. Nine kids. Mm-hmm. Which And where are you in that? I'm the baby. Yeah. The 36-year-old baby. Right. <laughs> which I still am, the baby, when we get together. Really? Is that how the family dynamic, oh, mate, it, it never changes? so frustrating because I think, you know, I've sort of built a career out of You're like, a man. communication, right. talking. I think I know, I know things, but when you get together at the family thing, I fall down the <laughs> rankings. <laughs> Even if I know more about the topic, I right. will get disregarded because of when I was born. So basically what you're saying is the Australian Parliament should be made up of only elder siblings. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it should work, yeah. Mm. 
Uh, well, that's very interesting to me. What, what do you think, uh, growing up in a family of nine, what sort of influence did that have on, you know, the personality that you have? Where are, like, what sort of attention do you get from parents when you're number nine? You get, I think, well, in my family, I think for big families, it tends to be you get spoiled. And I think that's a combination of everyone loves a baby. Right. It's, so it's cute. And that your older siblings are old enough to be your parents. <laughs> yeah, well, pretty much. Right. Like, uh, and, and also there is a thing that once you get to the last kid, everyone's relaxed. Parents right. have chilled out. Like if you talk to my elder sister, you know, growing up was a much different environment because you're the first kid. Oh, you can't go out there. Who are those kids you're hanging out with? By the time they got to me, mum was like, here you go. Here's some money. Here's a bus ticket. I'll see you Sunday night. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. Oh, I, was well, one of the, I was one of the kids who never had to, like, you know, you go out, your friends would go out on a Saturday night and you'd have to call when you got to someone's house. I never had to do that. My mum's philosophy, her willosophy, yep. if you will, was always... I've got to get her on so I don't spoil her episode. <laughs> was um, if something bad happens, then I'll hear about it. But yeah. until then, I trust that, you know, you've got enough sense to right. look after yourself. So your mum just takes uh, keeps up on your life through the social pages and sending you confidential? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I my, saw you and I spy, you're doing fine. My mum's on Twitter. What? My mum is on Twitter. Shut up. You'll have to follow her. It's hilarious. I want to she, follow her. She only follows five people. Barack Obama, the yeah. Pope, uh, my sister, my brother, me, and I don't know, someone. Oh, Lily Allen. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. How does your mum discover about Lily, love Al- Lily Allen? I don't know. I actually have to ask her. Your mom, yeah. Has your mum always been interested in people who are s- subverting the pop paradigm? <laughs> Not really. She liked the Beatles. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Beatles and Lily Allen. She's made two choices. <laughs> She looked around, saw if any of the remaining Beatles were on Twitter. I'm trying no. to think of actually my mum's music collection. She had a lot of vinyl growing up, but it was, the, I know she did like the Beatles. Van Morrison was another one that she liked. But then post that, if you go into my mum's place, like when we go there for Christmas, you know, people play Christmas carols and stuff. Right. She plays like this 17th century Gregorian, like monk chanting. Like it doesn't sound, you know, Christmas is more like jingle bells and upbeat. Right. You get there, there's in Latin kind of stuff going on. It's very strange. Did you guys sacrifice a virgin at Christmas? No, but I remember my brother freaking out one Christmas because like, mum, this is the most depressing right. music to open presents to. It's kind of like, you know, you're opening a present with a boy and you're expecting, will there be a severed head? Right. <laughs> actually get Let us celebrate the birth of our Lord with boy. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, uh, so I asked people, in, uh, oh, and you're the first person who sat in the comfortable leather armchairs uh, of the Willosophy podcast. Yeah, it's very Nog Howard. It is, isn't it? We're in a, it should be in a library with an open fire. Uh, we are sitting, well, it's basically that. We're sitting in two uh, Chesterfield armchairs, which is like, if anyone knows anything about armchairs, is like, they're very kind of expensive and, and rare armchairs. And I would like to think that, you know, that makes the, the, uh, the idea that like thousands of dollars have been spent on this podcast, right? But what really happened uh, was I live in a neighbourhood that is so good that people throw out brand new Chesterfield lounge suites as hard rubbish. Yeah, these are the kind of chairs that if you went into like a high market uh, furniture store, like vintage furniture store, that you'd think there'd be thousands, right? They'd be on display. Yeah. These would be the things in the catalogue that they were showing off. Mr. Mr. Burns (laughs) would have these chairs in his mansion. For the dogs to sit on. Yeah. (laughs) When he releases the hounds, they'd all be in Chesterfield armchairs and someone in my neighbourhood is so rich that they went, these chairs annoy me. (laughs) Get this expensive furniture out of my house. Yeah, so uh, so I stole them. Well, I didn't steal them. I are you allowed to 
reclaim hard rubbish, people do. If it's out in the street, man, it's fair game. Is it? Yeah, of course. We'll find have you ever? Well, have you put hard rubbish out and then got annoyed when someone's come picking through? No, 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 no. I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Get, I, I mean, it I, happens so quickly though too. When I used to live in Bondi, I remember I uh, put a mattress out, and uh, before I um, before I got back into the house, like I looked out my window and the mattress was gone. Oh, really? So I put it out, walked back into my flat, looked out the window, and it was gone in that time. I actually had a um, uh, <laughs> this ridiculous argument with the neighbour across the road from me because we'd organised, you know how you get two free hard rubbish collections from your council? Yeah. So there's the one, the general one that everyone knows about, and then you can organise it with the council yourself. And they send, Oh, you can have a did you not free one? They give you two. Well, and in my council they do right i mean knowing that they throw out chesterfields and yours they probably have a helicopter coming right. <laughs> like to, to airlift hard rubbish from your neighborhood entire houses yeah <laughs> in my neighborhood people just get their entire house lifted and dropped in the harbor <laughs> i'm sick of this house uh so they send you this like uh they send you stickers to you know put on the the furniture so they can identify it but they also say just put it out the night before like yes. just because other don't, people- yeah we people don't want it on your street because then everybody thinks it's hard rubbish they whack it all on your pile exactly yeah. exactly so i um as a person who's whacked things on other people's piles <laughs> i understood that so i put this uh i put this rubbish out and then i think i put it out two days early and then for some reason i we we did, we had to cancel the hard rubbish. I can't remember what the reason was, but so I went outside and I saw this uh, woman carrying this big table like across the road, and she dumped it and then she scurried back into the apartment. And I go to this big wooden table that this woman's left there, and I carry it back across. And one of the other neighbours from up top, all she sees is me dumping hard rubbish on their lawn. Oh no! And so she's like, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Someone dumped this on my lawn." And she's gone, "No, they didn't." And I said. Why would I make this up? I'm right. not just carrying. So it became this huge uh, this dispute. So I put it back on the other side of the road, and then went inside and wrote an angry neighbour letter. You know, uh, this does not belong on our lawn. Blah 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 blah. Please collect it. And it stayed on the other side of the of the street for about two weeks. The woman who dumped it. I guess she thought there's no way. It's such a big table. I won't be able to discreetly get it back in the house. So I just have to plausible deniability. I just have to go. No with one it. saw me. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. And ironically, all you needed to do was sit down at a table together and communicate. <laughs> you could have met in the street and sorted out your problems. Uh, so <clears throat> I like to ask people, the podcast starts with me asking people, because um, I guess the whole point of this podcast when I thought it up was that um, I, I'm really interested in you know what people's philosophy of life is. Andrew Denton always said of enough rope that the only question he really asked people was, life's hard. How do you cope with it? Because I think in the, we live in an age these days where, and I was being told this story at a wedding last night, and I think it sums up the age that we live in. And the guy was, a, he's a builder, and he was telling a story about this girl, this teenage girl, and she was out by the pool in the backyard, and he's never seen anyone look more bored and unhappy with their life. And she was just like sunbaking, mm. and she was bored, and she was unhappy, and she was just bored. And then she got up, she grabbed her phone, her face lit up. She took a selfie mm. 
and then sat down and was bored again. I think that we live in a world where we project out to the world that everything's perfect and we curate our worlds online and we tell people about how wonderful the world is all the time. But Mm. most people, you know, like life's hard, even for successful people. Life is hard and it's a constant struggle. So I guess originally that was like my mission statement for the podcast is that I wanted to ask people if they had a philosophy and and what it is. So um, some people have found that confronting in itself. Like some people are like, oh, I, I don't think I do have a philosophy, which is yeah. totally fine because if that's what I find out, that'll be as interesting as anything else. But yeah. do, do you have one, Charlie Clawson? Uh, I don't actually... I mean, I must admit, I listened to the first one with Todd and yep. I was like, oh my God, like he seemed to have lots of like little things worked out. Um, so I thought about it and the one, I, I, I don't know if it's a philosophy or a thing that I keep coming back to or something that I remind myself of every year, but I guess it's a philosophy. And that is at the end of every year, I'll sort of look back at what I've done in that year or the people I've met. And I'm always amazed by how that thing has enriched my life or how that person has changed my view or um, how things, how I've advanced. Like I've never sort of looked back and gone, I've just stagnated. Like I just spent a year doing nothing. And so what I try and do or what, I guess what's dictated the things I've tried to do for a living or whatever is new experiences, Mm -hmm. new people, new things. I was never that, like I have friends who have the same best friends from when they were, five you know or or high school or whatever and they're tight-knit groups and i've never really gelled with that because i I find that so what i'm hearing is you don't like to put work into friendships yeah (laughs) you're pretty much to discard people as they go or or i think that if it is meant to be ongoing right it's ongoing yeah but um i have i'm sort of a strange contradiction in that i'm quite emotional but i'm not sentimental if that makes any sense explain to me what you mean by that um so I don't put a lot of um, weight into dates or mementos or places that, you know, you met someone. Like those things to me are all in the past. Right. And for me, it's a lot about what's happening right now. Right. I look. So you have a terrible memory. Yeah, I, I do have a terrible. Well, no, I have a great memory for horrible internet trivia. Yeah. But I can't remember my family's birthdays, you know, and. That- you do have a big family, though. I do have a big family. Like, I have a much smaller family than you, and I, I don't really want to confess this on the podcast, but <laughs> I feel like it's a safe space, and this is what it's meant to be about. I, I, I miss ringing my mum for her birthday the other day. Yeah, right. Just because I'm not a person who, unless if somebody had said that day, hey, it's uh, November the 12th. I would have said, oh, my God, it's my mum's birthday, yeah. right? But because I hadn't been anywhere where it was really obvious to me that it was November the 12th, mm. it just passed by. And then I was like, oh, you know, on November the 13th or November the 14th, when someone said, you've got to do this thing, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, that shit. happens a lot to me where I've actually, since the invention of the smartphone, it's been a lot easier because I will set reminders. But I used to have like a Word document on my laptop, which was every sibling plus partners plus nieces plus nephews. And it pretty much fills a calendar year, like right. every, every month. This is actually... That's th- good, though. This time of the year after, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think my mum's birthday is October 26th. So there's not another birthday for two months, which is like a... Whew, like, oh. yeah, 
and I, 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 as I'm saying that, I'm sure you like, missed my nephew's birthday or the one some person, significant the event. one family member who's tuned into this podcast because yeah. they've followed everything you've done in your life and love you more than anyone else in the family, and you've just brushed their birthday. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh, uh, but but you know what? I I, I don't, but I can't use the big family as an excuse because my other siblings remember. Right. You know what I mean? They just put more effort into it. So I think. It mean that's what I mean about the sentimentality thing, and I know from are the- those things important to you? Like uh, birthdays, yeah. So, uh, are you a person who celebrates your birthday, and are you a person who's excited if someone remembers when your birthday is and gets you something? No, I, I actually get kind of embarrassed. Like this uh, year at work, it was my birthday, and I didn't tell anyone because normally, if people find out, like they might have a cake or you know, but I didn't tell anyone, and then. I guess someone on Facebook saw it was my birthday and then sort of the word spread. And it's not like a, a false modesty kind of thing, but... No, well, it shouldn't be because everybody has a birthday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be a weird thing to be falsely modest about. <laughs> but, that, well, but, but, but some people do... I think there's some people who do put a lot of stock in birthdays. Right. Like, particularly younger, obviously younger, but like... But it's weird when you meet someone who's like, you know, 40 or whatever and they're still treating their birthday like... They're 14. Yes. Like, yeah. where like, it's I'm like, the it's my boy. birthday. I know. That's I can do everything today. Someone, it's my birthday. That it's I, not the purge. I know like, a friend of ours who's like in her uh, late 20s, it was her birthday. And it was like, you know, that movie, The, the Purge, that just came out, yeah. Ethan Hawke one, where for one night, <laughs> all right. crime is legal because it's The Purge. Yes. She, that was her philosophy. It's my birthday. So, you know, I can do whatever I want. It's like, it's a Wednesday night. Will your boss be upset that you're not going to be at work? Well, it's my birthday. In America, uh, um, th- a lot of businesses still have that and you know, entitlement thing. You know, if it's your birthday, a lot of places will give you free meals yeah, or right. free drinks or whatever. And yeah, I did think about that last year. I was like, I'd like to find out where all those places are. And I, I would just like get up at like 12.01 and start, start my birthday. And- have a birthday crawl. Yeah, yeah. Just everything you can get for free. Yeah. The medicinal marijuana dispensaries give you a free gift. <laughs> <laughs> like that's your day. You just... You're, but you're not a birthday guy either. No. In fact, uh, so I'm about to turn 40. And uh, I'll be 40 on January the 31st. And uh, so uh, as we record this, um, I don't know when people are going to be hearing this, but uh, as we record this, it's the day before I move back to the US. And so that's been a pretty, um, you know, it's big, it's a big time. Like mm. I've had a few job offers recently just come in, some quite you know big things that I kind of said no to. And I've been making some other work decisions and I'm leaving the country to kind of set up in another country again from scratch. I have to get a new apartment. I have yeah. to buy furniture and I have to get the yeah the gas the on and the electricity. Get the old Chesterfields in the plane right. for the new apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Does this go count as hand luggage? Uh, you're trying to cram it. Do I have to all? buy a seat if I sit in the seat? <laughs> I brought my own chair. <laughs> Just walk with it strapped to your back. One of the Chesterfields strapped to your back. So I've got to decide when I um, uh, come back to Australia. And... Uh at one stage, I was just going to leave the country, end of November, and I was just going to come back for the Adelaide Fringe Festival, which is like early in March. Mm. So, uh, and then everyone was kind of like, oh, you know, what are you going to do for your 40th? You don't want to be like away from home and, you know, on, by yourself on your 40th. And because I'm not a birthday person, I've never mm. really celebrated my birthday. Um, I, it's my birthday every day, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but I do think that sometimes. I'm like, well, I work for now. myself. If you, if you want something, you'll buy it. I mean, there is something nice If I wanted to go to the a, movies gift, this like, morning, I could do it. The gesture of a gift, regardless right. of whether or not, you know, it's something you would have got for yourself or not. It, I understand that. But I also, it's kind of like when, um, when people say, what do you want? 
I, it's like kind of when people say, oh, you know, tell me a joke. Oh, what's, I mean, not to you, but, you know, in general, and you can't think of a joke. I can never think of anything that I desperately want, like, on the spot. I sort of, you know, I, I will go into a store and see something. I'll be in line and see something. But it's not, I, I feel like I'm letting my girlfriend down when she says, what do you want for your birthday? And I go, oh, no, I'm fine. Like, maybe we'll go out for dinner or something or drinks with friends. That's fine. But... I don't want to attain things through gifting on my birthday. I don't know. It just doesn't. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I, because I've been lucky enough that for a lot, a long time in my life, I have, you know, probably earned more money than my friends or like, you know, at least, you know, my close friendship. Being group. gainfully employed. Yeah. It, yeah. As opposed to my friends, I was employed. <laughs> I had a job. Yeah. So I was a real winner yeah. in that I was the one who had a job. <laughs> On the scale of employed and unemployed, I was employed. I didn't have a gold castle in the clouds, <laughs> but I had a job, yeah. and that made me ruler of all. <laughs> Lording over your micro kingdom. They would come to me and I'd say, I will, I will pay for this thing for you, but one day, and that day will, may never come. <laughs> I will ask a favour. <laughs> so, um, Come do my podcast. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I wanted something, I would normally buy it. And I'm not, I, I think I'm twofold. I, I'm what they, I hear this all the time from my friends. I'm a hard person to buy for. Yes. And I think that is twofold, which is that I don't actually have a lot of things that I want. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm not a person who's like, you know, yeah. necessarily into collectibles. I like comic books, but yeah. like, I'm not obsessive about anything. And yeah. so that part of it. Yeah. The other part is that if I do see something that I want, I tend to just get it. Yeah, yeah. And then people are like, oh, I could have got that for you. And I'm like, but then I wouldn't have had it for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I just give you the receipt? Yeah. <laughs> you can you can pay it off for me if you like. I mean, I haven't been gainfully employed for the amount of time you have, but I have the same idea about gifts. And it's right. not because I can go out and get it, but it's just, uh, I think it's actually a... Uh, I think it's a, uh, a, like a, mo- a, a Catholic inbuilt modesty thing of... Uh-huh. Uh, you don't want to like it's such a weird thing like Catholicism teaches you or, or breeds in a lot of guilt early on and so like the idea of putting someone out that they have to get your present and give you a present I don't know I don't know if it's a hangover from that you know the way I was raised or, or, or what but I th- I've, I've been thinking a lot about this kind of area recently and I guess even doing this podcast it makes me think about how I think about the world and I was uh, as I said and I can't I, I won't go into the details of this but I also in this podcast would like to be as honest as I can be without being indiscreet or giving things away that you know mm. um, and, and particularly when it comes to work I, I, I think it's really I've never enjoyed um, – I've been offered jobs before that other people then go on and do that I've turned down and I've never wanted to be one of those people who's like, well, someone else took that job. Mm-hmm. You don't have to – if you didn't want it, you don't have to be out there going, mm-hmm. you don't mean it, Gabby, I didn't want you to do it. Yeah. Particularly in that voice. That would be really that annoying. Would be really, really annoying. <laughs> uh, so I only talk about this in the context of I got offered a couple of big money jobs that I decided I didn't want to do, but it, it made me think about, well, what is it that I am doing and why am I doing it and yeah. what's important to me? Mm. And and so there's a couple of things. Is The first thing is I've realised that what I would like to buy with my money is freedom. So anything that gives away freedom in return for money, if I've got enough money to have my freedom and autonomy, which is what I believe that I have now, I can say what I want. I'm master to no one. No one's saying you can't do this or you can't say that or you have to go to this. Mm. That's very important to me. Yeah. That's the thing that I probably value, you know, top five you know, values that I have. You know, yeah. it's much more important to me than money. Yeah, yeah. The second thing is that 
I've come to realize that the thing I'm most proud of is that I'm my own man. Yeah. From the minute I left home, I've never, no one else, whatever's happened to me, like I made it happen. Mm. You know, I paid for everything. I went through the hard times and I did that myself. I mean, you know what? I was on the dole for a while. I should admit that. So the government helped me. Yeah. Society helped me, you yeah. know. but Taxpayers will. Taxpayers. That's and right. now work That's for right. the ABC. So yeah. I've been ripping right. them off forever. <laughs> But I, I, that self-determination, I think a lot of people don't have self-determination and I can imagine how incredibly frustrating that is when your life is in the hands of a dickhead boss or mm. someone who makes your life a misery and you don't – or you hear about – I think we can be very judgmental of like women who don't leave relationships when there's violence and stuff involved and I'm a white ribbon ambassador and you kind of like – your initial thing is you've got to leave. Yeah. But it, some some of these people don't have the – you know, they've, they've never had to look after themselves or they've, you know, they're like, how oh, would I survive? All kinds of dependent relationships. Right. The psychology behind it. Yeah, for sure. So I, so I think those two things, like self-determination, and I think if you are a person who values, like, I can buy things for myself. Yeah, I will do this for myself. Then other people giving you gifts always makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I guess that self-determination thing, I've only recently... Because when you're an actor, especially when you're starting out as a young actor, right. you are completely at the mercy of other people's decisions, right? More than most other jobs. A, you get rejected 90% of the time. And B, uh, you don't decide what happens. You literally, you are, you're really, on the creative ladder, you're really at the lowest totem. Right. Someone else tells you're you how to props. say the lines, what lines to say, what clothes to wear. So <clears throat> I think a lot of actors, and there are a lot of very smart, independent, confident actors uh who get conditioned into this idea of permission right that you know you have permission to uh you you can only work when someone gives you a job and it's sort of uh, being a stand-up you could go out and you could just ply your craft sure actors can go out and put on you know do amateur theater and stuff but there is um I, i do know i have noticed it with actors that i'm friends with and even with myself that you go well, if I don't, if, if someone doesn't say I can, I can work, then, you know, I, then I, I, I don't do anything. And it affects your self-esteem and, you know, you get very close to something and you start imagining, oh, this job's going to do this and you don't get it. And then again, that sort of undermines you a bit more. But then the last, like before I, I did Home and Away, so the last five years I started producing. You know, my girlfriend's a director. She came out of film school, wanted a producer. I'd been on set for about 10 years and, yep. I, you know, I'd worked at production companies as a runner and stuff. So I had an idea of how to do it, but I sort of had to teach myself. And something happened over that five years where I was, I started to see an option aside from acting right. that was all based on the amount of work I did. So I could actually, and I guess another philosophy of mine is if I never have to work a real job, then I think that's a win. Like when I was like a nine to five office job, I tried that for about six months wasn't for me. If I can, if I get to work on stuff I want to work on, like I choose to work on this job or I create this job even better, I don't have to make a lot of money. I just want to be able to pay my rent, have enough food to eat, you know, live. And I can't complain. I live in, you know, one of the richest cities in the world, you know, a beautiful place. I don't live in the best house in the best neighborhood, but I have a really good quality of life. You know, I can't complain about any of that. I live in a neighbourhood where they throw away chests of couches. <laughs> you live in a slightly neighbourhood than me. <laughs> I, um, I get a plastic banana lounge thrown out. I, I understand what you mean by that, though, because I think that people, when they're starting out, they think that there are certain things that will make you happy. Yeah. 
And it's look if if having your own private plane makes you happy, if it genuinely makes you happy, yeah. then great, aspire to that. But yeah. I think sometimes we get caught up in other people's aspirations. Yes, we get caught up in what we think we well, should be doing. You constantly look at other people and you compare yourself to other people, right? And you say, well, that. So you just say you're a 23 year old, you know. That you know, the, in your group of friends, one guy is making twice as much money as you. He's wearing these kind of clothes, and you think. Well, that is success. Obviously, it's success because, you know, that's what we're, we're taught. And it can really – it's hard to go your own path. It's hard to be your own person. And, like, to me, it sounds like with you, you sort of – it was incremental, you know. You weren't trying to land this huge job straight away. You were aware that you had to get better at what you did, you know. So you were on the dole for a while. You did the open mic stuff. And you got to a point where it was like, okay, I've mastered that level. Now it's up the next step. But you must have felt pressure from seeing your, you know, other your contemporaries like going ahead of you, or. Well, no, no. I mean, for example, and I, again, I, I want to kind of dance around this a little bit, but because of me saying no to some of these jobs yeah. and some of the other decisions I've made about my career, that means that essentially I'm taking a, a pretty big financial hit in this next twelve months mm. to pursue. To give, give myself a year, I've been working for 20 years and the one thing I've always said I wanted was if I could ever get to a point where I could just pretty much solely do stand-up comedy, then I wanted to have a year where I could just do stand-up comedy. You know, get out of bed in the morning and all I was thinking about was the gig that I had that night or in three days' time or I could work on the material, I could record it, I could pick it apart, I could just go to gigs or I could, you know, just yeah. the idea of every time when I'm walking around and something happens – I can like, oh, I can feed that back through the act. That's all I've ever wanted. Like, and I finally got to a point in my life where I'm like, well, I can, I can do that. Like I am in a position where I'm financially able to do the thing that I've been saying for the last 20 years that I wanted to do. Yeah, that's cool. But then at that point comes along a truckload of money and a couple of jobs. Of course. Right. It's like when you just fall in love, that's when every other single girl's like, Will, do you want to have sex? We're having an orgy at our place. Right. <laughs> We'd like you to come around and be the judge. Well, we're actually having orgy practice. Yeah. So we just need a guy to come yeah. in and yeah. That's, that's what happens. Like, you know, just when that, you're going to make that big step. Of, but it's, it's, so it's, what it's, I was going to say about that, just to add on to it, was that that will mean that two people – who are in the same company, like who are managed by the same company mm. as I am managed by, at least two of them who are much less experienced comedians than me, but who have just landed really good jobs, mm. will earn more money than me in that office. You know, and I'm already not the first person that, that you know, when the phone rings, there's a lot of people who earn a lot more money than me in that office already. Mm. So I don't think about that too much. They answer my calls and, like, you know, they look after my career and I'm very happy. But there's another part of you that thinks, oh, wow, you know how you were the third or fourth most important person? Like if you know yeah. there was an emergency, now you're probably seventh or eighth yeah. or whatever. And, and yes, there's this part of you that, go, of course. Ego. Ego, right? Yeah. But there's another part of you, and this is the one that I try to think about the most, is that I'm really busy like, and I'm doing the sort of work that I want to do all the time. Yeah. No one's telling me what to do. It's fantastic. Sometimes I don't get out of my pajamas. Like, you know, sometimes it's three o'clock in the afternoon and all I've done is talk to the cats and I've worked all day and I love it. Like, I I enjoy it. And I'm not sure that there's, you know, a Rolls Royce that would fill the hole inside me that would happen if I couldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I guess I I think I was was born with 
middle-class syndrome, <laughs> you know what that thing is. Where, what does that mean? What do you well, mean? Well, I was neither rich nor poor. Like, yeah. you know, I, my family didn't have a lot of money because there's so many kids and my dad died when I was quite young. So I was on a scholarship. I, I got a scholarship when I was 12. So that's how I was able to go. I went to a private school, but on a scholarship. So um, I was surrounded by a lot of- Which I think uh, completes, I'm going to, for anyone who's listening along, if you're <laughs> hearing this as the fourth in the series- uh, I think that completes uh, the only thing that all four guests have had in common is they all won scholarships oh, really? in school. That's Seriously. That's interesting. And, and including myself. So all five people who've been <laughs> on this podcast all had a break in life because of school sh- scholarship. Oh, I yeah. think the thing we may discover out of this podcast is that school scholarships are the real thing. Well, that- I, actually, I actually got two scholarships. I got one scholarship, which was to, I think it was, they took care of 75% of the school fees. Uh-huh. And then... My fun, before I entered year 12, I won a scholarship to go to India and work with missionaries for a couple of months. We've talked about this before, but um, that those two kind of things were very pivotal. I mean, the high school I went to, it's, very, you know, it's, it's a very wealthy um, all-boys school in Melbourne. And it's funny because I, I really, everything, I, it, 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 it feeds into a lot of who I am, but it has a culture and an old boy kind of philosophy that I never bought into. Like it was very much about you are now part of, as most kind of elite colleges are, like you are now part of this group and you are now uh, in this social group that if you want to, when you go out into the world, you can call on these contacts, you know, it's, that, that sort of boys club thing exists. I never And it does exist. Like I mean yeah, yeah. you read about it in the press and you kind of hear about it, but you're aware of it even as well, a student when you're there at school? Yeah, very much so. I mean it is kind of <laughs> they have classes explaining how it works. I mean <laughs> here's the number you call. Well it's the, the way the school the way the, there's two different ways it's brought across. There is the institutionalized version of it, which is, you know, this uh, you know, this school stands for these things. Um, you know, uh, uh, people who graduate our school are you know, academically this, or you know, we feed into uh, you know, a lot of AFL players came from our school. But then there was the more kind of, um, I guess, the colloquial philosophy, which was, we are the greatest, <laughs> we are the chosen ones. Like as men, we are the greatest. We are the masters of the universe. And like my, uh, there was a reputation that you know, whenever guys from our school rocked up to a party, it's like, ugh, because they would all keep to themselves. And then at the end of the night, they would want to, you know, then they'll go over and, and t- take a girl home or, or want to speak to a girl. Like it was just a very insular kind of thing. And that was sort of celebrated. Like, and that was never my philosophy. Um, I'm going to say that word so many times. That was That's never fine. My, That's ne- what the podcast is all about. Well, my attitude. I, I, so this goes I, to you, like to go, go back to what you initially said, this goes to this idea of, you know, you talked about the idea of experiencing new people and wanting yeah. to be around new people for new ideas. So that was the something opposite. that even then you were kind of aware yeah, of. Well, I guess, I guess cause I grew up in, you know, my family has a, you know, is, is kind of, I guess, you know, there, there a lot of stuff went down, you know, there's death in the family and, you know, I've got gay brothers and sisters, so I kind of grew up with an awareness of alternative lifestyles or hardship or, or something that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like a 1950s TV show where it was picket fence. You know, there was some stuff going on in my family. So when I hit a school where predominant as a Catholic school, so predominantly out of 250 kids in my year level, there was one kid who had divorced parents. So I thought that was the norm, that families stay together. It wasn't until I left high school that I'd say most of my friends come from broken homes, not, you know, in the dramatic sense, but just the parents have, have split up. Um, so there was this kind of 
I felt at least, maybe it wasn't true, but to me it just felt like everything was very conservative, yep. um, very white, uh, very privileged. Like there was, you now there was kind of, it could be fairly racist at times. It was very, like I think uh, Joan Kerner was the premier in Victoria at the time. So yep. when Jeff Kennett came in, it was like cause for celebration. Like it was the witch is dead. And that stuff never gelled with me. Like I, I never understood kids. I remember, I remember a guy on the train going to school, one of the guys I went to school with, encouraging me to be racist. Like, what do you, you know, mean? Why don't you make fun of Asians? It's fun. And I was like, what? I just, I just don't think it's yeah. cool. And he was like, it's fun though. It's fun. And, and I just, <laughs> I don't know if it was my, you know, my family taught me this or if it was something I just decided as a child, but I didn't want to involve myself in anything that made people feel bad about themselves. Right. You know what I mean? But, but here's the other thing is like, like, <sighs> I'm not necessarily going to say you should forgive the racists, but I'm just saying that as teenage boys, maybe they don't know, they get caught up in it. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but this is like a guy who's actively trying to recruit other racists. Well, I think... I this think is, is that guy now a clan leader I, or something? I think what it was is a group of guys sitting around bullshitting yeah. and one guy is saying something and I'm the guy who's not joining in. So I'm making, you know, it's like, the, the, it's like you're the vegetarian at the barbecue yeah. and it's like I'm making him feel bad by my non-participation. So... so uh, but you never felt peer group pressure to oh, join in. Oh, of course, and I'm sure that I'm sure that I, I slipped from time to time just to kind of fit in. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember being uh, New Year's Eve in Lawn one year and uh, hanging out with some guys from Essendon, and they were like, uh, "Where are you from?" And I said, oh, "Brighton," <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, it's a yuppie suburb." And I'm like, "Nah, mate, it's a yeah, I'm not a yuppie. I'm, I'm, I'm poor. I'm a." <laughs> I'm just down there taking those rich pricks out. <laughs> like I just tried to pretend like I was from the mean streets of Brighton. Oh my God, you were the original Sam Worthington. <laughs> yeah, <totally>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there, I mean, I, I think it was just one of the, you know what it's like. I mean, you know what guys can be like, and especially if it's sort of a privileged environment, but they're, the guys that I would go to school with would talk... I mean, their fathers often went to that school. Their brothers went to that school. And they would talk about when they had kids, those kids would go to that school. And, you know, they would date the, you know, the sister school. And so it was just a very tight-knit community. And the only... The other person that I... The only person from high school that I am sort of still see quite regularly is Michael Chamberlain, the, you know, uh, comedian Michael Chamberlain. Yep. And he was of the same mindset. Like, when we were at high school... You know, we would see all the rah, rah, rah stuff and it would just make us kind of, what? this is crazy. Like it was, it just felt a bit, I've never been parochial like that. I mean, crazy, I'm a mad keen saint supporter, but you know. But okay, but explain. Enforced parochialism. I guess. But paint me a picture here because the Charlie that I know, like, and it, it did not surprise me at all when you said what your philosophy was because you are a person who I think fits comfortably across a range of social groups, probably out of all my friends, the sort of person you just like, I could take you to anything and you'd be like, oh, he'll be fine. And yeah. like later, like you wouldn't even have to worry like, oh, is Charlie fine? You'll be off. You'll find Talking someone you to want someone. to talk to. or like Talking at someone. Right. Yeah. But that's what you're like. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get a picture of, so it feels like you weren't part, like as in like you, mindset wise, you weren't part of this group, but do you feel like socially oh, you yeah, were no, part I of this group? I was definitely accepted. And Michael You was. weren't like off to the no, side no, or no, anything. No, 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 no. Michael and I like, um, we would have those conversations. We'd have those conversations with our friends, right? But um, no, I was never. I was never an outsider. Like I've always, I've always sort of had friends. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess, I, I guess, maybe I'm lazy. I just maybe I need to work harder at friendships. But I just kind of felt that the people that I like. I mean, we've been friends for ten years. We don't see each other that much. No. But 
I kind of feel like there's an ease at which we kind of communicate and we have similar ideas. And I figure if it's meant, you know, if you, that's the way it should be. I, I don't understand. I have friends who, like, have you ever gone to a Bucks party and, you know, the groom will be getting beaten up and humiliated by his friends? And, and, I'm, and part, of my, part of me is like, why would you want people in your life where this is how you get along? You know what I mean? Is this because you've just known them since you were 15 and you're like, well, you know, I went to their Bucks day or, you know, I just, I don't really have time for that. You know what I mean? I think I did when I was younger. And, you know, definitely I sort of maybe allowed myself to be, I don't know, like I put, uh, I put myself into a, I, my self-deprecation would be a way of endearing myself to a group of people until it started backlashing. And then I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously. So I pulled back on the self-deprecation, you know what I mean? I think it's interesting for people to hear this. And like, I mean, I don't know the age groups of people who are listening to this podcast, but I would say, what I'd say for particularly for younger people, because I think that you're so wrapped up in your peer group and your friendship group when you're a kid and you think that everything is so important mm. because these people are going to be your friends forever. forever. But they don't have to be. Like, they might be. I've got a couple of mates who, like, and again, I see them once or twice a year, but who are my high school friends. Yeah. Two in particular that, you know, I'm still very great friends with to this day, despite the fact that I'll probably see them once or twice a year. But I would consider them both, yeah, really good friends of mine. Yeah. Uh, but then I don't really see anyone else. That's it, yeah. really. Like, I mean, but yeah, at the time, I feel like it it, it has such a heightened importance well, in your, your life. Well, that's your world, right. isn't it? You know, especially, uh, especially when you're sort of coming out of high school and- you know, the thing about going to uni for me was I went to an all-boys school, so I couldn't wait to get to university and talk to girls, like, on a daily basis, not just after school or on weekends. So what know? is that like? Because, and I mean, I don't mean in a, like, juvenile way. I literally, I, <laughs> I'm sure we can go there. I'm sure. <laughs> I know, but then I'll have to cut that stuff out. Okay. I, uh, no, I, um, I, what I really mean is that, how do you think that shapes your view of the world? Because I'm a person who always went to co-educational schools. Yeah. Did you go to a co-educational primary school? Yeah. yeah. Yes, go co-ed primary school, then from uh, year five to year 12, it was all boys. So how do you think that shapes your worldview? Uh, look, for me, it, I, I grew I mean, when I grew up, I had five sisters. And for the majority of my childhood, because my, my, my older brothers are a lot older, so they were moved out of the house. So I only had, and then my father died when I was 10. So often I just had women in my house. So it was probably a fair balance. But um, I, would see, I would see that guys at my school had an inability to relate to women. Either they were sex objects or objects of ridicule but very few genuine friendships. Right. Um, and I don't know whether that's just teenage boys in general because I only know my experience. But I, 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 I think, I don't know. For, for a guy who is maybe shy or whatever to talk to girls, you're going to be twice as shy if you're going to an all-boys school because you've got no experience. At least if you go to a co-ed school, I imagine, you know, you're sort of forced to actually interact. So with where do you interact with girls when you're at a boys' school? After school, like, you know... I'm, after before school, after school, weekends, and so they have, and they have, they have like organised social right. things like that. But but how, but how does like the interact? Do, does one school hang out with another school? Yeah, Is that yeah. kind of how it works? Yeah, yeah. So you know, like. Um, it, it just tends to be where, because what will happen is kids will go to primary school together, then they'll go to different high schools. Right. So wherever the majority of the kids land, that tends to be what high schools hang together. Um, 
But you know, we in the in the area my school was in, there's probably about four or five schools, like girls and boys' schools, that would all kind of go to parties and interact and stuff, and sort of, you know, I knew I knew girls from different schools, but I didn't have a girlfriend till I was. Six, I never even kissed a girl until I was 16, 15 what, or 16. Was sex something that was like, I mean, you're a teenage boy. Mm. So, like, you know, let's assume, like, you know. There was, <laughs> I thought about it. Right. Yeah. But how big a theme did you feel like it was in your teen years? Like, were you yeah, yes. a kid obsessed with sex or well, with yeah, obsessed I mean, with no. sport, obsessed with, like, I mean, you know, if you had to define. It's probably those two things. Right. I, <laughs> I mean, it really So, was. nothing has changed. Yeah, no. That's a lesson to this podcast. <laughs> 20 years later. <laughs> exactly the same values. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was any more sex obsessed than any other teenage boy, but I had a lot of Catholic guilt. Like, I had this idea that I couldn't kiss a girl mm. because if I kissed her, I would then be forced to go out with her because, you know, you don't just kiss someone and move on. You kiss them, you make a commitment. And I wasn't prepared for that kind of commitment at 16. I don't want a right. girlfriend, right? That's a Catholic idea. I know a lot of guys have that <laughs> idea too. Well, I think it was, I, I mean, I, I don't, it, it was definitely, I felt a lot of shame about right. it. I remember when this girl, Georgina, something or another, when we were like 13 or 14, she developed quite early, mm. had a very womanly figure. So I like, I was obsessed with her. I'd see her at the bus stop or at, after church and stuff and just be like, I was totally infatuated with her and she liked me. Yeah. And I remember one day at the bus stop, she said, why don't I come around to your house after school? And I was like, yeah, yeah, great. And then the walk home, I started thinking about it and I started freaking out. I was like, so this girl's going to rock up. My family's going to see her. They're going to think she's my girl. And then, you know, I just had this panic attack. And so I hung outside my house because she was going to come out at five or something, like a block from my house, knowing she's going to the street and intercepted her and made up some story about my mum being really sick and no one's allowed in the house and all this kind of stuff and sent her back. Yeah. And then was so ashamed and, and confused. After that, every time I saw her afterwards, I just completely froze her out. Like just completely, like I remember, it's one of those horrible things where, because up until this point I'd been like, it was all sun, sunshine and happiness. And then I just froze her out. And we, because we went to primary school together, she went somewhere else and she came back. And uh, we were talking and flirting on the train. And she said, I've got photos of us when we were little. I said, oh, cool, bring them on Monday. Then that incident happened. And then on Monday, she came up with the photos. And I was with my guy friends and I ignored her completely. She sat down next to me and I didn't acknowledge her. And then at the end, she just shoved the photos into me and, and walked off. And I was just oh. like, I mean, it was, oh. you know, I was young, but it was just one of those kind of things. But it breaks your heart still thinking about it, right? Yeah, I felt awful, yeah. awful. And it was all because I didn't want anyone to think that I like girls? girls. I don't know. I don't know what I was freaking out about. No, but I don't think we do know what we're freaking about out yeah. about at that age. Um, do you remember the first girl you ever kissed? Who was the first girl you ever kissed? Yeah, Lizzie. Lizzie, I think her name was Lizzie Gardner. I was 15, I remember, because my friend Jim Hawkins, not the uh, Louis Stevenson character, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he was with this other girl, and uh, this other girl and Lizzie were friends. And so we went out... Uh, to their place one Saturday afternoon. And I remember going off with Lizzie and I knew she wanted me to kiss her, but I didn't know how to do it. Right. I didn't know how to initiate it. So what did you know about like, um, you know, had you had the, well, I'd only, I'd only learned a year earlier that you meant to use your tongue. Right. <laughs> and I remember I'd asked a guy like trying not to reveal my ignorance because this one guy, because what happened is because this is what I can imagine at an all boys school is there'd be so many rumors oh, yeah. about Nonsense. what you're meant to do. Well, I remember a sex education class in in year seven where <laughs> this teacher 
had tears in his eyes from the questions he was fielding. Like I remember one kid putting up his hand and saying, I heard having sex is as hard as running three marathons in a row. You get that exhausted. Is that right? And the teacher, what? Where does that come from? And someone saying, can you raise, um, can you, can you raise sperm in a fish tank? <laughs> what the, they don't get bigger. Like it's not like they're actual fish. They're like sea monkeys. <laughs> So there was a lot of kind of misinformation. And then, right. And, and, and so by the time I got to high school, because what happened with my high school is two junior schools merged. So two junior boys schools merged. And the guys from the other school were a lot hipper, a lot more advanced. They had girlfriends. You know, they were listening to Nirvana. They were just a bit more, we were a bit more sheltered, you know. Right. Bayside suburb. Um, and I remember like, because all these guys were just talking about, oh, I can't remember the term they used, score. Did you score with her? Oh, right. Yeah. I think Did yeah, you that score? was, yeah, if you're passionate, you scored. Yeah. And these guys talking about scoring. And I was like, it was like that scene in 40-Year-Old Virgin where I was sitting there listening to them talking about scoring. I was like, so when you guys score, do you use your, your tongues? And them all looking at me and going, uh, yeah. Yeah. Haven't you ever scored before? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I score just, all the time. I'm just asking if you yeah, do. Yeah, like I do. Yeah, and then I did that classic thing of because they said, well, who'd you score? And I said, yeah. this family friend. Oh, uh, I was on, <laughs> I was on holidays. <laughs> She's a couple of years older. Yeah, what's her name? Bob Recker. <laughs> Did you just say Bob Recker? No, Rebecca. You said Bob Recker. Was it Bob or Brecker? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so true. The the <laughs> stupid little like you know lies and myths. And I used to do a bit of stand up uh, about uh, which was a true story about thinking when I was in grade six, something sexual you did with a, a girl was called a hedgehog, <laughs> which was embarrassing. And I, I know I got in trouble in grade six for telling another kid all about what an athletic support did, even though I didn't really know. What's oh, no, no, support? that's what I, no, that's, I've got that story wrong. Uh, <laughs> as I often do. So I'm seriously bad with stories. Your li- about your own life? I, I, I had one the other day where I've been telling this story for years Charlie, for years, about the time that I saw Matt Damon on the street uh, in New York. And then I'm telling this story. I've launched into it at a party. And Amy's just gone, you went there. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I remember it clearly. The hat he had on. He had like an esky. He was coming from the baseball. She was like, no, no, no. You were at your gig. And we were walking to your gig. Wow. And we saw him. And I, And suddenly I was like, Oh my god, that is what happened. Yeah, but I up until that point, because so Amy told you they saw Matt Damon. Yeah, and you just and I just filled it all in over the years, and I thought that it was me who saw Matt Damon. Yeah, I did that. I did that plenty. Dementia, I believe it's called. (laughs) (laughs) You can't separate fact from fiction. That's why I'm just recording all these podcasts. (laughs) One day I'm just going to listen back and go, "What did I do?" Will's covered in tattoos, reminding him of who he is and where where he lives. (laughs) <laughs> Will Mento. <laughs> so, um, okay, so you've touched on it a couple of times and I don't want to talk about anything that you don't want to talk about in this regard, but yeah. you mentioned the fact that your dad died. Yeah. So um, uh, it's as much as you're comfortable talking I'm about that. But, com- uh, I'm completely comfortable. So you were 10? Yeah, I was 10. So basically what happened is he had stomach pains and so he thought it was an ulcer. He was taking antacid and stuff. He went in for an examination and they said part of your intestine is really inflamed. Uh, so we're going to remove it and put you on a colostomy bag. So he went in for this, which is fairly routine operation. I think it was a week after my, my, my uh, 10th or 11th birthday. And uh, the operation got botched. They punched his lung. 
when they were putting him under anesthetic. So they had to abort the operation. Uh-huh. And then in his weakened condition, he contracted pneumonia. And then over about a six month period, he just got worse. And it was right. one of those things where it was not cancer or any one thing. It was just basically like his body shut down. And uh, I mean, you know, it was, it, was a, it was one of those things where for the first three months, we all thought he was just going to come out of hospital sometime because, you know, it was not a cancer or, or, or anything significant. But then it just never got better. So it was, I, have, I mean, it obviously it shapes a lot of who I am, but I just recently I kind of made a discovery about myself, which I think stems directly from him dying, which is uh, I, I don't have anxiety issues like some people have anxiety issues. You know, it's not serious enough or, or debilitating enough that I can't, you know, face the world. But you, we, you did once pretend there was infectious disease in your house, so a girl didn't come. To kiss you, <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> uh, so I, um, what I, what I do uh, when, when I'm confronted with a, a problem, my immediate thought goes into the negative or what is going to go wrong or... Oh, really? So, for instance, you know, like, um, you know, we're having a dispute with this car dealership over the moment because, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, they, they, we, in, we, we inquired about a car very cursory and then uh, they've taken that as a verbal agreement that we were going to buy the car, like something ridiculous, right? Right. So they came to me with this email saying, you know, we're going to charge you 10% of the sale value because you said you're going to buy this car. And my, even though I knew I was 100% in the right, I panicked. I right. was like, this is going to go bad. They're going to get money out of me, you know, all these kind of things. And I was really struggling with what that was. And so I had seen a therapist about it and I was saying to her, I just had this issue where when I could get confronted with big decisions or, or things that could be a problem, my immediate response is to freak out Mm -hmm. to to catastrophize a situation Mm. and i said i don't know why i do that because i know i'm very capable of dealing with lots of situations you know i mean as a producer that's what you do is your problem you're a problem solver yep but occasionally something will happen and i will freak out and i'll get very emotional too you know it won't just be a case of Right, you're not having an intellectual freak out. No. Like, you're not doing that sort of thing of going there. I, I've thought through this intellectually and the situation this is, is going to go really badly. No, I get like, I take it personally. Right. You know, especially especially in business, you know, like, um, uh, you know, like as a producer. So, you know, you have a dispute over money or, mm-hmm. or contract or hours or something like that. And that's a very cut and dried kind of thing. But I had a tendency to take it personally. Like this person was asking for money because they thought I was a, uh, they were, I wasn't a good producer, right? Or that I had somehow stuffed up, and you know, my, you know, that low self esteem would come out and say, "That's because you're not good enough to do this job. You missed, it. you know, this guy's right to make you feel bad, right?" All rather, kinds- rather than going, "Oh, he probably just asked for money because." He has bills. Yeah, exactly. And he's giving you a goods and or service in exchange for money. <laughs> so this therapist I saw, uh, you know, we just started chatting about life. Now, was this a like a one-off thing or had you been seeing somebody on and no, off? Or well, you have it was a- someone that I decided to see about this. Okay, yeah, sure. And um, So that must have meant that this issue was looming large enough for you that you thought, I have to well, talk I just, to someone professionally yeah, about I just, it? I just found, I mean, I think in my family, from speaking to my siblings and, and my mother, um, my family, I, I can see where it comes from. Like I can sort of see, you know, uh, I can see a similar, uh, similar behaviours in my family. So I don't know if it's a genetic thing or an environmental thing, but um, at least I had that kind of clue. And so um, what I found was, 
I would have a normal day and then I would get into bed and just as I'm about to go to sleep, every single thing that was worrying me would rush through my head. Oh. Stuff that I had no control over, stuff that I had control over, but it was almost like I'd been suppressing it for an entire day. Yeah. And then in the peace and quiet, my brain would decide to say, this is what's wrong with your life. This is why. And it was all very negative. You know, none of it was, um, hey, great work today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you're, doing, you're doing fine, pal. Yeah. Here's a montage of all the awesome things yeah. you did today. And we yeah. fed it to a, the theme from Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of got sick. Of, and, and it was also, my, the emotional side was battling the intellectual side. Because the intellectual side was saying, but you're doing fine. Yeah. You know, you're in a stable relationship. You have an income. You know, you've got all these things going so, but it wouldn't matter. I would, they would get drowned out by the panic. So I went and saw this therapist and she, talking, talking about the family, she identified what I think is, is, was the issue is that, you know, you lost your father at a very young age, mm-hmm. a very impressionable age. And so as a 10-year-old, you have your world tipped upside down. And I do remember at the time thinking, holy cow, like I've just lost my dad. If my mum dies, I'm an orphan. Like... Yeah. I'm now, so you did think that? Oh yeah, as a kid. Yeah, I'm yeah. now fifty percent closer to being an orphan. And right, because I mean, I know I'm going to say this in a jokey way, but in that kid's <laughs> logic, when you've got two, you've still got a spare. Yeah, that's right. Like, I'm, it's not like you want to lose one. No, ever. Like, no. But I, I get how you'd be like, you know, you're not only dealing with the fact that you've lost your father, who you love, but you're dealing with the fact that. If you lost, you're suddenly so aware of, oh my God, what 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 happens if I lost mum? Yeah, totally. And also, you know, I saw, I had seen how when it's a when it's a slow death, like a, not a sudden death, uh, like the you really see the weight, you know, crushing the family down, yeah. like a because it's like a slow squeeze, and so a lot of issues pop up, you know, unresolved family issues and things like that. And right, so in a weird way. From my point of view, I can't speak to the rest of my family. In a weird way, I think dad dying was a really bonding experience. Like uh, it brought a lot of family back together. Mm-hmm. And I think gave us something that we all, you know, we all share. Like it is right. a very important uh, thing that we have in common, yep. you know, is, is we, we all lost our father. And that has definitely influenced, you know, the way I view the world. But from the, the negative thing was that what happened is, that got in, into my brain that things can change in an instant and they can change drastically. So as I got older, that child, that child's impression yep. never matured. Just that response. That response, that yep. immediate response. So what this therapist sort of had me do and, and what I've sort of worked through is the idea that, uh, you know, you have to address that insecurity. You have to like literally converse with yourself. And you know how you do the pros and cons list? Yep. You basically have to do that. So when I have that panic attack or that moment of, oh, it's okay. Well, what is the worst possible outcome of this situation, you know? And is that something that requires this amount of fight or flight, you know, this this mechanism? I haven't conquered it yet. Like I still definitely, you know, get those that rushes of, of panic or, or anything like that. But that was sort of something that... But tell me about being able to recognize what it is that's putting up that barrier for you. Yeah. You know... That doesn't mean that you're necessarily able to like get through the barrier or over the barrier, but at least you can recognize that that's what it is, mm. that that's why you're feeling like that is because of this response that you have. Yeah, well, knowing what it is, is better than not, you know, like otherwise I think, because I, I had a, a girlfriend who used to suffer like really crippling panic attacks. And I, you know, I'd be out with her 
And all of a sudden she would literally just collapse, you know. And it's frightening to see that she could not cope. It was like there was too much input and she was couldn't breathe, felt like she was dying. I mean, I don't have anything like that. Um, but she didn't know where it was coming from. You know, she just thought she was going crazy, you know, which must be terrifying. It's a, it's a hard thing for people to recognise why, you know, they put up these blocks for themselves. And we all do it. Like, I mean... You know, I, I was this uh, having a chat with someone the other day about stand up, and I, like, people who followed my other podcast know more about this story. And I'm not getting bogged down in it now here, but I did uh, eight fully improvised uh, trial shows at the Sydney Comedy Store, and I charged fifteen bucks for them, and people came and saw them as shows. You know, yeah. but every night I walked out on stage and completely improvised an hour of different comedy to the next night, wow. and it was exhilarating. But I said to my friend Justin Hamilton, I was talking to him about it, and I said, in the past, I think I've cheated myself a bit because I was so terrified about going out on stage and, you know, failing in a trial show mm. that you that you cheat yourself down the line. Like, the thing that worked with me with these shows was I gave myself permission for them to be awful. Right. I went into them saying, you are trying something brand new here. Yeah. You have never done this before. Yeah. You might be terrible at it. Yeah. Like I, I felt confident that I could do it because I've done enough improvising around, but I've never improvised an entire hour. Mm. I did not know if I could do it or not. But I gave myself permission at the start of it for it not to work. And how was that? And did you find that easy to take that permission? Well, luckily, I think, I mean, who, who would have known if the, second, if the first night went shit? Yeah. The first night went great. And so then I'm like, well, as soon as you've done a good one, you're like, well, I can do this. Now, I might not be able to do it to this level every night, but I can do this. Yeah. And But that first one, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I did was say to myself, you are doing this for a reason. Yeah. You will learn something out of this regardless. And, I, that, it, and it goes back to your theme of embracing the idea of having a new experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? Whether it's going to be pleasant or not pleasant, mm. you've got to get out of your comfort zone a little bit and sort of get through your blocks. And that's the only way that you do get through those things is to, you see, know. See, it's interesting though, because your philosophy, my philosophy is in my like normal life. You're talking professionally. Right. I haven't yet got to that level oh. of new experiences professionally. Like I think, uh, like, you know, out of necessity, definitely, yep. I've done stuff that I haven't been comfortable with. But I don't think that kind of the, the, the ease with or the, the um, openness with which I approach new people or new experiences like day-to-day life has not – I'm still – I think I'm still hesitant professionally, you know, because I don't want to look like an idiot or, you know, don't want to stuff up or, you know, all those kind of things which – you well, that, it makes sense. Like, I mean, the, the movie Carrie's been remade. Yeah. And, of course, like, the big the famous line is, you know, they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah. That's the most hurtful thing that you can say to another human being. Like, you know, when you're a kid in particular, they're mm. all going to laugh at you. Yeah. Well, I chose a profession where <laughs> they're all going to laugh at you and that's a good thing. So, maybe there's something a bit flawed about the way that I view those things anyway. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, y- your dad uh, dies. Yeah. And... What happens? What happens next? So I can just, I, well, I, I can't even imagine what that's like. So dad dies, and uh, so half the family are out of the house by now. So there's just me and uh, three sisters, the two sisters who are still at school, um, and uh, he left us quite a good 
some in, in life insurance. I think back then it was about 500,000 or something uh-huh. like that. So it would have been quite a bit. Mum invests that money in a building society called Pyramid, oh. you may have heard of, which uh, six months after my dad dies, collapses. And yeah. one of the biggest like uh, financial collapses yeah. in Victorian history. That's right. Yeah. So I think uh, the, the compensation was something like eight cents in the dollar. Wow. Yeah. So um, it was a double hit. <laughs> I mean, I, and, that's, and that's kind of when, um, I mean, I talked to my mum about it. The amazing thing about uh, all this is uh, my mum kept a diary throughout this whole experience because I wrote a short film called The Wake, which yep. was about, um, you know, the, the day of my father's funeral. And uh, that was sort of just based on all my recollections and it did quite well for us. And so a few people had inquired about, you know, maybe you could expand this to a feature length film. So I was talking to mum about it and she told me she had this diary. And when you read the diary, she starts it on the day my dad goes into hospital and the entries are all just, you know, got to get shopping, kids from school, blah, blah, blah. And then it goes one month into it, two months into it, she starts writing down her feelings. Like it just gets more and more of a, just a, a, a journal. And some of the days I read what she has written and I'm like, I, after I read it, I just had to call her up and say, if I was ever a prick to you, if I ever did right. anything wrong, I am so, so sorry. Like, because I had no idea. I mean, it's hard enough you lose your father, but she was losing the love of her life and having to worry about how the kids were coping with that same situation. That's the thing. Like, that's the thing that really breaks my heart is that she's losing the person that she loves, mm. but also having to stay strong. For, yeah. yeah. So, like, I mean, one of the things, because I remember, because we used to visit him, we, but he was at the Prince Alfred Hospital, which doesn't exist anymore, he's trying to secure the road. So, we'd go in a couple days a week to see him. Mum would go on probably most nights to visit him. And I just remember, like, going in there one night and he was looking really bad, you know, he wasn't eating and they had to force, they sort of had to push us out because they were force feeding him and that wasn't working. You could, it was really horrible. And then mum and I sort of trudging down to the car like wordlessly and then getting in the car and it's pissing down one of those horrible Melbourne winter nights and then we got to start the car and the car won't start. And, and then mum, I just, mum burst into tears and I just remember sort of sitting there and as a 10-year-old, it's like, there's a lot of shit to process. Yeah. Then I read the diary of it and that was just the tip of the iceberg with what she was dealing with. She was having to pay mortgage you know, uh, savings had run out. Right. She didn't even know if she could buy shopping. So what I saw my mum crying about was I thought was the two things that I was saying, no, there was everything going underneath. So it goes on and on and on. And Which again is a, a, a reasonably important lesson, not only for like you to remember in that context, but for us all to take at least a moment more per day to linger on the fact that you don't know why that person did that thing just then. Yeah, you know that yeah, person true. in the street who looks distressed? They might be having the worst day of their life. Yeah, or totally. that person who just snapped at you. Or that person who's taking a bit or... too long to turn at the lights. Right. Yeah, just give them a second. Just give them a second. You know, yeah. you, know you, you actually don't know what's going on in their life. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that we can't, you know, we're not going to live in a world where, but if we could just take a second to realize that other people, but again, this yeah, goes, goes back to that thing that I was talking about originally is that we project this image out to the world of our perfect lives and yeah. we compete in this fictional perfect life scenario. It's true. But then, so it doesn't give us that room to kind of, it'd be better if we said, look, everyone's struggling through this. No one knows what it's about. Mm. And we're all trying to work out some way to make it make sense and give it some meaning. Yeah. Let's stop putting pressure on each other to be perfect. Let's just, and maybe we can right. work it out. We 
we could yeah. actually like you know if it's we true. if we admitted that you know when politicians stand up we expect these politicians to stand up there and go we have the solution to everything and everything we say is right yeah. really yeah. You can't tell me that if we got all these people together and we decided between us the, the majority of ideas, yeah. that wouldn't work better as a system? Well, that's the thing about... I mean, the reason I'm sort of suspect on politicians and politics in general... Oh, here we that, go, Russell Brand. <laughs> we're sitting in the right chairs for it. Right. Uh, is, um, well, it's not just politics, but just in general, anyone who takes the high moral ground... Like, I just know personally... That if someone was to troll right. through my history, even if you even troll through my internet, internet history, history. <laughs> yeah. I would be humiliated. Yep. You know what I mean? And for anyone to piously, but I think everybody this is would the be. way. Yeah, of course, everyone would be. We've watched enough of those, like you know, the right wing guy or the yeah, the yeah. past. Well, I mean, and not to get bogged down in this area, but the recent revelations about the pedophiles that they've arrested in Australia. These people, some of them were priests, which I suppose doesn't surprise, but some of them were teachers mm. and doctors and lawyers like i mean these are all you know upstanding upstanding members yeah. of society with terrible dark secrets you know doing terrible things yeah. so if they're doing that you've got to imagine that you know on the sliding scale of things that we actually are embarrassed about we yeah. perhaps you we're, know we ever ever yeah i mean the idea that we're that we're projecting like i mean well, we're trying to create a, in australia now especially with what's happening in politics is where it feels like we're trying to create an idea of this is the kind of australia this is what australia is mm. australia values these things yeah and i'm like well do they really because i think that's great as rhetoric but right. i don't i don't see that day to day you know i see a lot of horrible things going on yep. in this country that are swept under the rug and this thing that the thing that bugs me most is that just man up you got to be able to take it like that. That kind of it's the Australian version of the stiff upper, upper lip thing, and I think, but why? Because a lot of these guys who do just take it are actually boiling on the inside. There is nothing good about sitting on your emotions and just toughing it out. You know, that 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 doesn't end well. You know? No, I know from experience, and I see it happen. That doesn't end well. People who can't express themselves or have an inability to express pain, they take it out in really bad ways. But I think even on a more general level, as a world. Like, it's a pressure cooker. Like, every day when you go out there, it's a pressure cooker. And we've just got to relieve a little bit of the pressure, you mm. know, instead of adding to the pressure. Like, you know, when that person cuts out in front of you because they, you know, you were in their blind spot or whatever, but nothing happens, you probably don't have to slam, like, yeah. the horn and make the situation worse. Yeah. You know, like, we all make mistakes. Yeah. You know, I think that we could all help a little bit more. Like, I mean, it'd be great if people stopped getting, like, looking on their phones on the street so that people yeah. bumped into them. Yeah. But at the same time... Just step around how, and don't. How's this, right? I was in an uh, um, uh, underground car park at my local shopping centre. Uh-huh. And when you say an underground car park, you don't mean like an underground car park. <laughs> like right? an illegal yeah, was uh, like, off the books car <laughs> park? Off the books car park? No. A you got to know a guy? <laughs> no, I'm in a car park that is under a building. Right. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you know, it's like a circular drive. You come in, it's circular drive to get out. So there's one one driveway. Yep. I get into the car park and as soon as I get in, I'm like, oh, well, there's trouble here because all the cars are jammed up. So there's a traffic jam happening there must be some reason at the exit gates or something whatever we're all stuck in this traffic jam how long do you think it started before people started honking their horns right straight away and people who people are honking their horns it's like do you and i'm like we're all in this together like no one is like engineering the situation inconvenience you this one guy gets out of his car behind me he's so angry he there's a, a car washing uh booth you know in this car park these guys are cleaning cars. He goes charging up to one of these guys and wants answers. What the hell's going on? But uh, these guys don't 
run the car park. They work at the at the car wash. It was unbelievable. It actually made me despair for humanity. I just couldn't. And it no, but I. But, but that's what I talk, think about boiling point. I feel like we're all at that point where we're just ready to snap at each other, and we keep adding pressure to it. You know, yeah. that guy beeps at that guy, and he gets angry, and he goes home, and he's angry at his wife, yeah. and then the kids see that. Like it, it poisons Definitely. us. Like. And and we can do little things. I, I really do believe it's stuff. Like you hear the politicians talk about all that big bullshit, but we, they'd be better off just saying to people, you know what, we're on a footpath. Like stick to the left hand <laughs> side when you walk, and then you know maybe do that. That'll make the world a better place. Uh, if you're on an escalator, step over to the side so people can get past you. If you're not going to walk, yeah. uh, that'd be a good thing. When you're on a plane, um, you, we just got to get off in order. You don't need to barge to the front. We're all going to get off in order and, and get down to the baggage carousel. Yeah. And you know what? Don't go through an intersection in your car until there's a clear exit from the intersection. Because one of the things that's making people mad is that you tried to sneak half a second of advantage on the way home and now you're in the middle middle of an intersection and no one can go. If you just (laughs) paused a little, everything would have worked better. Yeah, that's a perfect metaphor for it. But that's what we're like now. the intersection. We are, but we all are. It's like, oh, if I don't get ahead. And we've got to realize that even though we're not all in this together, because we're not all in this together, but by the very nature of being alive, sometimes you impact people harmfully, but we should try to not hurt other people, you know, on purpose. Have you seen that documentary, I Am? Uh, no. It's, uh, I can't remember. He's a director. I Am Legend. No, no. About Will Smith. No, no. At the end of the world. Uh, there's this documentary I saw called I Am, and it was made by uh, the director of the Ace Ventura movies. Yeah. And he starts off by saying, I can't remember what his name is. It's not Jay Roach. It's one of those kind of 90s right. directors. Guys. Uh, and, and he's religious or something though, right? Is that the guy? No. What, he's, what he did is he, because he was making million after the first Ace Ventura, he just did Liar Liar, Ace Ventura 2. So he was the hottest director in town. And he talks about how... You know, he was flying private jets and he, and he bought, like, you know, exotic cars and he remembers moving to this huge... He was living a Jay-Z song. Totally living a Jay-Z song. And there's photos, like, he's showing photos, he's explaining it, and he talks about... He takes you back to the, the house he bought, the first big house he bought. It's this mansion, like something from Entourage. And he said he walked in, the removers, removerless left, and he stood in the middle of his foyer and looked up and was like, I'm lonely. Right. <laughs> like, what does this mean? So... What he's done is he got rid of everything. He basically, he, he stopped pursuing the dream that, you know, we're all pursuing yep. and started exploring himself. And so what that has meant is obviously he's turned his back on his career, the million dollar directing career, but he sort of lives very simply now. But he, the, the whole documentary is exploring. I find that fascinating, by the way. There's a, there's we, a big part of me that, like, you know, I have that tendency in me for simplicity, like yeah. even moving at the moment, like I have to think about what's my house going to have in it. Yeah. And I had this real thing of nothing that I don't need or use. Well, that like my attitude to life at the moment is like buy food, eat yeah. all your food. Yeah. Like, cause we could fix the world. Like a lot of the world's hunger. Americans throw out half of the food they buy and Australians throw out a third of the food that we buy. Right. While half the world starves. Yeah. And we're throwing away perfectly good food. So yeah. now I'm trying not to buy shit that I leave in the fridge and you know, like I just want to use everything. Well, there's one, there's a professor interviews in this documentary who says that certain indigenous tribes, um, their definition of the desire to attain material possessions is considered a mental illness. Right. That you should only want what you need to sustain yourself. That is all, you know, we should be sharing the planet as opposed to trying to get more than our neighbours. And 
Because just- also, uh, like a lot of these things, and like obviously, you know, free, uh, like, you know, I work in an industry, you know, where people earn money and free enterprise, and people are, and I consume things all the time. Mm. So I don't want to like sound yeah. like I'm a massive hypocrite oh, about this, but there is that element of like, you know, that need to constantly update when the thing that you have is still doing a perfectly good job. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, yeah, the phones are the perfect example of that. Yeah. Like I'm like, Obs- oh, well. Obsolescence has become this thing, which is like, why can't we just have the thing that lasts for like a good 10 years? Can't like- I just have, a, like all I really do is text, like yeah. text and ring people occasionally. Mm. Like, I, can can you just give me one good phone for that and then I'll update it again in 10 years? Yeah. Try to explain to someone who was born after say 93 that in the old days to book a flight, <laughs> you had to go to a travel agent. Right. And they would show you what flights are available and then you'd have to pick it and then you'd have to go pick up your ticket. Ticket. In person. Pick it up. <laughs> An actual ticket on one of those old school printers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dot matrix Dot printer. matrix. Uh, but one of the other things that he uh, found, that he talks about in this- Of course, topic. there's someone from 20 years older than us who's sitting listening to this podcast going, well, in my day, <laughs> you had to get on a boat to England for six months. <laughs> Uh, uh, one of the other things he talks about is the, this idea that it's a jungle out there, yeah. survival of the fittest. Right. He said that um, Darwin has sort of been misquoted or misrepresented in the idea that this uh, that the survival of the species is about being stronger and more dominant, because Darwin also said that society is actually also based around harmony. Yeah. And the equal distribution of resources. And when they say survival of the fittest, what they mean is survival of the most uh, useful to society as a whole for us to keep exactly. surviving, right? So, it doesn't actually mean that you have to be the winner. Yeah. It means you have to be the one that is most conducive to all of us living together. Yeah, right? well, I don't know about you, but I have this impression that, and what we're told is that, you know, the like the jungle is a horrible, violent place where you could get killed at any second and that's what it's about is like killing as many things, eating and killing as many things so that you don't have any predators. That's right. what, which that happens for sure. Yeah. But he And says, I know that you can't say this because you're a lovely television personality, but what you really mean is eating, killing or fucking as many things. Yeah. They're the three, they're those things. Yeah. You eat, you kill, you fuck. Those basic human sort of like, you know. Exactly. At, at the base of who Well, that's what we're told anyway. Yeah. But he was saying, and this, uh, this uh, I don't know what, people who study animal sociology, was that um, cooperation and nurturing is just as value as a, a commodity right. as being able to kill and eat and have sex with the things around you. And that- Nature has countless examples of th- uh, 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 of things working in harmony in order to achieve a goal that benefits most people. And the one example they give is if you have like a herd of buffalo, right, in the middle of a, a plain and there's three water sources that they can get to and it's the afternoon, hot sun, it's very important that they don't go this far because, you know, they might not make the water or if they go this far, there won't be enough water to drink. So there's alpha males in these groups who are, you know, the strongest ones, but they don't make the decisions. What the herd will do, and they don't know how this happens, is that they will decide communally that we're going to go in this direction to this water. So when the 51st percentage of that group starts wandering, then the group follows. So it's almost like pure democracy. Not everyone's going to vote for it, but the most people who vote for it Everyone follows suit. Do they have a proportional representation system, though? <laughs> I don't know. What that is. <laughs> is it first across the post? Like, it, uh, do you have to get fifty-one percent legitimately, yeah, yeah. or and they're having you, recounts? Can you put some preference deals <laughs> yeah, together yeah. with some other guys if yeah. we can't get in that direction? Well, the flamingos then, are going to back right. us on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was fascinating, and right. and that actually had never occurred to me that like. 
I mean, that is essentially what a society. I mean, a society should be doing right. Is is kind of the majority is de- uh, decides on what benefits the group. I mean, you probably can't please everyone, no. but the majority. You know, if you're right. going to get most people taken care of, most people fed, most people cared for, then that's where we should be going. But what it feels like we have is alpha males right. on alpha females as well, alpha persons, yep. people who get up and say, "I'm infallible." This is, and it could be religion, it could be politics, but that's how it goes. I know the answer. I know the answer, and then that filters which down. I, which I guess, like, and just to go back to why I started this podcast in the first place, is literally because I, the older I get, the more I uh, am convinced of the idea that the only people you need to avoid are the ones who think they have the answer. Absolutely. Like I was hoping when I talked, yeah, we talked to people, what people would realize from listening is that all these people, all of whom have like done something with their lives, you know, that is of interest. Yeah. They all have different philosophies and they see the world in different ways and none of them have the answer. Well, I'll give you a perfect example that comes back to, you know, my father dying is trying to find a father figure in my teens. Right. Like how that evolved. And, it's funny because certain people assumed, just decided to, I will install them, install themselves as my father figure. Yeah. That didn't nah. work. What I realized is that I had lots of father figures. I took a bit from my brothers. I right. took a bit from my friends. A lot of my friends uh, are a bit older than me. You know, like you're five years older than me. I'm, you know, my good friends I met when I was eighteen. They're all in the early twenties, and I think, yeah, it was about friendship. But there was part of me that was looking for lessons of how do I bridge teenage right. into my early twenties. Yeah, how, how do I become a man? Yeah, and my and so I think I took a bit of everything from all my friends. Like it was, it's but that is the perfect analogy because that is exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Like I get. That a lot, of, and this is my thing. It's like I'm not saying there's a reason that these religions have been around forever, and there's a reason that people subscribe to these philosophies that help their lives, and a lot of them have like really great truths at the heart of them. It's just that step further where you're like, oh, you don't believe my one, I'm going to blow you up, yeah, or that you can't do this, or you know, gay people can't get married, or whatever the yeah. you know thing that you're stopping someone else. But I think there is legitimacy in all those things, but it's about being able to pick, oh, here's what I need from this and here's what I need from this, rather than somebody coming in and going, I have all the answers and just obey these 10 things and everything's going to be fine. And that's why why I feel so, I mean, you know how uninvolved with the political process I am. And I just, I I, I can't, you know, they they will put up policies that are definitive. And parties will argue against the party that's in power purely to argue. Not, I mean, something could be put forward that, you know, could be of benefit to most people, but the party that's not in power will argue that it's not. And that is, to me, that that is not constructive. Maybe I'm too open-minded. Or maybe I give too many people the benefit of the doubt. But well, this is like my thing with climate change, right? It's one of those issues where I just feel like both parties should be saying, look, Everyone seems to be so sure, you know, one way or the other. And the one thing that I know is, like, from what I've read, is that most, a lot of the scientists, not all, not exclusively, a lot of the scientists, particularly people who are trained in climate science, think that man-made uh, climate change is a real thing and that we, it's something that we should be doing something about. Some people don't believe that. I hope the people who don't believe that are right because yeah. it's better for the world. You know, and I want what's better for the world. I don't want to win this argument. Yeah. Like, I hope they're absolutely right and it's fine and the world yeah. will just spring back and we're all going to be sweet as. Yeah. But 
what I think we just need to do in politics, wouldn't it be great if both sides said, look, none of us know 100%. Let us work together on coming up with what is the best solution for this country and the planet so that we can all survive, no matter what our opinions are on other things. And let's work out if it is a real thing or let's put enough insurance in place if it is a real thing and maybe hedge our bets and like not put all our eggs yeah. in that basket or just fucking work together. Surely if you all work together, you'll come up with a better yeah. answer than what it is at the moment where you just flip-flop from one to the other. Yeah, but it's all about, isn't, I mean, isn't that that thing of politics is about fear? Right. You know, they didn't, that's that, that famous thing with the Tea Party. You know, there was that memo or something that went around uh, when Barack Obama first was elected saying we need to appeal to, they called like anger points or something. Right. Like, it doesn't matter about facts. What, uh, what words, what buzzwords can you use? I mean, I guess in the last election it was boat people. Yeah. You know, this is something you can rally around. It's like, this is a complex issue. Right. You know, it's a, it's not as easy as shut the door, turn them back. No. These are human beings. And it's also not, and, and as sad as this is to say, it's not also not as easy as... Let them all in. Yeah. Come yeah, one, come all. Of course all. not. You also can't have, do that. But surely there is a middle ground. Like, There's got to be. But, but they, I mean... But there used to be issues uh, that they were off... Uh, the, the both parties agreed. There's a term that isn't immediately coming to my mind, but essentially uh, consensus issues or issues that they agreed that even if we have different opinions, we won't politicise. Yeah, yeah. You know, asylum seekers and border protection. And border protection used to be one of those things. Defence used to be a bit like that. That the parties wouldn't, yeah, because it's in the interest we of need, the nation. We, yeah. we all need it. Yeah. So, like, while we might have little differences in how we'd go about it, in general, we won't make this a big issue where it, mm. it has to be one way or the other because they're not. Not black and white issues yeah. like you know well i think sometimes with our border protection policy they are black and white issues <laughs> nice. but yes uh okay so what you were saying about this film reminded me of something mm. and i guess as this podcast goes on i'll introduce little bits of what i think about life or little things that i and so this is just quite a recent one it came up in the age and era of you know the internet and negative feedback and you know like it can be quite, as everyone knows, like, you know, you don't have to be a person who's well known to get negative feedback online. You hear about teenagers, you know, doing it to each other. I think it's just, it's across the internet. Read any news story, you know, it gets negative, you know, three comments in. Like, yep. And so you have to come up with a coping mechanism of how much you'll take that on board or not take that on board and how you'll deal with it. Like, you know, do you engage with it? Do you just block people? How do you deal with your own emotional state? And so I started thinking a lot about, yeah, the podcast and my stand-up and all those sort of things. And then it's such a simple philosophy, but I saw someone had reposted some quote where someone said, uh, uh, I'm too... Uh, I'm, uh, no, what was it? I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to hate the ones I hate. I'm not going to hate the ones who hate me because I'm too busy loving the ones who love me. Yeah, right. And it was kind of that idea of you're creating your work for... A, a community. Yeah. So what that community is, and you've got to realize this is, if I create something, what I need is, if I create in a vacuum, it doesn't actually mean anything. So what I need is an audience of people who, you know, are there for when I make something, they will like, you know, I can make it in the knowledge that some people will be able to engage with it yeah. enough, hopefully that, you know, it's worth my while to do the thing in the first place. Yeah. So when I start to think of it like that from like, all right, well, I want to make something. Now what I need is an audience. So how do I get an audience? Like you have to make something that is necessary for them in their life and their community. Mm. So how you engage with them, but you're only part of their life. 
they need you a little bit in their community, like for funny yeah. or for whatever. And But if you start to think of it like that, what do I need from them? What do I get from them? What do they get from me? Yeah. Like in relationship to all your yeah. – I think it makes a bit more sense. Yeah, and, then, and that becomes actually a perfectly valid way to charge – for something right like to because creatives have a hard time putting a value on what they do you know like with a podcast or you don't want to charge but you know it's cost me money people i would i happily put money down for the podcasts i listen to when they occasionally do like a bonus pod yeah or merchandise or whatever because i feel like i've been given something i'm gonna give back i'm not spending but, but what i was gonna say about that is but that's even about them knowing how to, you said something that was really interesting it wasn't like you were just going you, you should uh, pay for this podcast because you know what? People aren't going to. It, you know, people aren't going to stop downloading television. We have to come up with new models to yeah. make that sort of stuff work. Um, but if you offer them something extra and you think about your community, that in your community there are some people who really do want to support it and all they're looking for is you just give them something yeah. that they want or need yeah. to be part. So you give them something special. You give them a live episode or you yeah. Yeah, put out a T-shirt or whatever and people can who'd, who'd like to engage with it in that yeah. way, it works in their world yeah. and it starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, definitely. So um, how long do you think that you have had, you know – like that philosophy is that always the philosophy oh, that of, you've had of the working together yeah. is better than fighting yeah <laughs> yeah is it since like you saw that movie or is it like well, a lifelong no, I think thing it comes back to the that scholarship i got to india right like that was the that was where i really that was eye-opening for me a because it's the first time i'd ever been overseas so look we have talked about this on another podcast but i kind of see this as a different world and we're probably going to talk about it in a very different way <laughs> yes uh, there'll be less jokes yeah uh, uh, and, so, and probably less disbelief coming from you right. because the first now that i've story you couldn't yeah you can find that story in another form another place but that's I'll, right. I'll leave that up to you guys <laughs> that's um, a little easter egg yeah that's fine but um it, but yeah, t- so tell my, me so how old are you when you go to india so i'm 17 so my high school uh is a jesuit high school yes. and jesuits uh, Jesuits are a, 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 a branch of the priesthood that um, formed about 500 years ago. And they generally, how they're defined is they're normally professionals. So they're not priests study for like, I think it's three years or something to become a priest. But these guys will have law degrees on top of that, medicine. Um, they're kind of like rabbis right. of the Catholic world. Uh-huh. Um, or, you know, like the X-Men or something right. like that. Yeah. But what I love... They're the SAS soldiers. But the Jesuits, uh, uh, they've been excommunicated many times in their 500-year history. Why do you get excommunicated? For challenging church doctrine. Okay, so they're a uh, bit of a... that They've got a reputation for that? Yeah, they're the Wolverine of the right. X-Men, right? The so, yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the Jesuit fonds. But they do have a they do have a thing of... they pri- a, a Jesuits prior to, prior to, prioritize education above everything. I think there is a quote which is like, you know... Give me a child, I'll give you a man, or something like that. Oh yeah, said. show me the boy at what? Is it that one? Is yeah. it show me the boy at? Give me the boy at six, and I'll yeah. There'll be a court case later yeah. on, <laughs> something like that. Something like As that. I was saying, I was like, oh, this is not. I can't. I can't no. possibly make this happen. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they have a, a philosophy of um, of questioning, and you know, don't just accept what's in front right. of you. And I had a, a my we had some family friends with Jesuit priests, so I spent quite a bit of time with them, and I they always had a bit of an aura about them. Um, so anyway. Uh, there, when India gained its independence in the 30s, I think it was, or 40s, oh God, I don't know, um, they kicked out because they were overrun with missionaries after the British Empire had been in there. There was all kinds of missionaries, like hun- literally hundreds of different kinds of missionaries. Yeah. Um, they booted them all out apart from the Jesuits and the Lutherans because they felt, well, you guys are actually doing decent work. Right, it wasn't okay. just about. Yeah. 
So when I had my interview to get the scholarship, um, they, they, they sort of were asking me, well, why do you want to go and work with these missions? And I said, well, to be honest, I don't think I believe in God. I think, you know, uh, religion is an outdated concept. Um, I think that you're over there brainwashing people, blah, 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 blah. So when did you, let's pause there for a moment. Mm. When did you come to those realizations? Probably only a couple of years earlier. I was like a devoted Catholic boy. Was religion, uh, like, was religion a comfort to you when your father died? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Because I think that that is one of the things that I, when I talk about the idea of the absence of God, you yeah. know, in my life and in my opinion, I I see when people are suffering and or if someone dies, it's that idea that they are going to another, pl- you know, a better place or they'll be able to see them again. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I mean, there's probably people who will say, well, that harms people in another way that... But to me, I kind of go, like, in that terrible situation, what brings them comfort in that? Yeah, I used to talk to my dad after he died. Like, you know, I would pray every night. Yep. And, like, normally I'd pray for, like, a couple of minutes before I went to sleep. How did... did, Because I don't even really understand that. Like, what when you say you pray, do you pray something that you've learned or do you actually... Are you actually talking to God? Well, what I would do, and I don't know, is I would start with a prayer. So I'd say, you know, our Father, and then I would just have a dialogue either in my head or maybe I'd talk quietly to myself. Okay. Where I'd talk to him as if I was a third person. And then... um, I would finish with a Hail Mary and that was, and that, yeah, was right. that was a prayer. That was your closer? That was my closer, yeah, yeah. So I would start the classic, finish with the classic. Yeah. <laughs> That's your set list. Just like start, start, with, start with the one that, that, one that he likes. Oh, my God. Finish with one he likes. Oh, no. I can do my new stuff you in know, the middle. You know what it is? It's like, it's like, when, uh, it's like when you know an artist released a best of album and they'll jam right. like two genuine classics at the start yeah. of the finish. It's like, you put those three in the middle. Right. <laughs> Aren't they your new stuff? Yeah. No one thinks there's a classic, mate. Yeah, all right. If you give us living on a bread of finish you can do some of the stuff off the new album in the meantime <laughs> it was a bit like that uh so um i guess i guess what i guess when i when i got to my my mid-teens i just started to see a lot of the hypocrisy of of religion especially yep. going to a very wealthy catholic school yep. because you know some of the parents at that school you know they're they're uh they would you know, they would sack the 300 workers on a Thursday and then go to church on a Sunday and it was all forgiven and come back. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know that that's, That doesn't seem... It doesn't seem... I just felt a bit... Did it make all those 300 workers' lives better as yeah. well when you went to church? <laughs> yeah. And I just used to see a lot of that. And yeah. there was a lot of blind kind of um, uh, uh, indoctrination. People, you just go to church because you go to church. And so I was questioning all of that. Yeah. So they liked that. They They actually responded to that. They're like, well, this is a guy who, you know is probably going to go there with his eyes open and yep. it might actually teach something. So um, I went over for two months and started in Calcutta and then spent most of my time in Bihar, which is one of the poorest states in India, sort of northeast. Um, and I would go out and uh, see what the missions were doing. And, the, and what, what struck me immediately about it was over there, because there's a billion people, religion isn't reserved for Sunday. Religion is every day. Like there's idols everywhere. People pray all the time. But it's it's kind of woven into the day to day life. You know what I mean? It's it's not sort of Catholics have a tendency to ritualize and um, almost mourn. You know, like church can be very mournful. You know, it's right. very gothic and, and dark. And up until you know fifty years ago, they're in Latin. Yeah, it wasn't a celebration. It wasn't even a kind of um, a, a, a living of the religion. It was a, it was like a, a ceremony you went right. to to remind yourself of how bad you are and you're born in sin. You know? <laughs> Very depressing. Whereas over there, like, and I'm talking not just, I mean, I'm talking Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism and all the religions I saw. Like 
it was really, it was, it was everywhere. It permeated the culture. Right. So that was the first thing that struck me. And then the second thing that struck me is that the priests I was meeting and hanging out with and, you know, who had taken me out to the missions, they weren't like the priests I knew. The priests I knew were like rock stars. You know, they were kind of pillars of the community. They got up in front of a crowd a couple of days a week, you know, did a tight half right. an hour set, yeah. you know, but it was glamour. You know, there was, it was kind of cachet, right? Over here, these guys, they didn't, I mean, they didn't all, often they were just in sort of, you know, the local clothing. They weren't wearing the collar, um, but they didn't separate themselves from anyone. They were just there to help. And that was honestly the kind of, the simple fact is that, so I went out to this one village, uh, you know what, the un- you know about the caste system and untouchables? Well, explain to people. Like, I mean- so uh, the caste system, basically you are born into a ranking system. And if you're at the top of the caste system, then, you know, you've got to have a pretty good life. Yeah. But there are certain people in the culture that, um, and this is something that's dying out, by the way, it's not, you know, uh, it is, you are considered untouchable and you are the lowest of the low. So the best you can hope for is maybe a cleaning job, but more than likely, you're going to be living on the streets. Like it's, right. it's, it's a, so um, these missionaries were working with villages of untouchables, like whole kind of uh, villages. And what they were trying to do was to get these two communities talking because they had been feuding and you know, fighting over land and water and all this kind of stuff. So what these missionaries, these Jesuit missionaries had come in and done is said, well, look, rather than this constant tit for tat and you, know, you guys have got this land, why don't you guys pull your resources divide you know the river for certain days if that works for you um but better than that why don't you use all the labor you have to build a well in both your towns and that way you don't have to fight back in the river because you've got wells in town so they did that and that went really well and there was kind of what like- they should have done is got together and just killed the next level up <laughs> yeah right <laughs> formed an army yeah. fight your way up survival <laughs> the fittest have you guys learned nothing <laughs> So after they got the wells and that was like a tentative kind of truce, then they, the, the priests um, sort of helped them have this kind of negotiation or, you know, whatever. And they said, okay, well, what are the primary concerns of your community? You know, yeah. Education, housing, all this kind of stuff. Right. Normal things. Normal right? things. Universal things. So they got to working on that. And then the whole time I'm there, I'm like, okay, so when's mass? Like, when are we going to go to mass? Right. And the priest was like, well, this is mass. When we get everyone together and we talk about you know, what our problems are, and then we sort of try and resolve them. We then sort of go, okay, if you like that idea, there was this other guy called Jesus, and he had a very similar philosophy, which was treat one another as you would like to be treated yourself. You know, don't kill each other, don't steal, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but I said, no, that's it. Where's the bit where we (laughs) We feel terrible about making the baby Jesus cry? And look, there were obviously more traditional, like in the bigger cities, more traditional Catholic, but the philosophy of it was it's about helping people and it's about community. So I came back from India really like inspired and engaged and thinking, yeah, okay, I get why people have, I don't know if there's a God yet, but I can see the benefit of religion because it's a philosophy. It's helping people. To live by, yeah, Yeah, you know what I mean? And that is the truth. And that golden rule is very much at the heart of- Of Every religion. Yeah. And most philosophy- yeah. Not oh. all, but most. Yeah. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It makes it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So then I came back, but it very quickly evaporated. When I got back, I just saw that, you know, we live in a very privileged culture and it's a lot easier for us to ignore the people who are worse off than us because yes. we barricade ourselves in, you know, cities 
uh, yeah, we we don't have. You can go your entire. Well, we don't engage. This you can was, go your entire day without having to go without crossing paths with someone you know who needs your help. Right. That they say the the standard you accept is the standard that you're willing to walk by. You know. Yeah. Right. But we are not forced to walk by. You know. Like, you know, the most confronted we get is like a homeless person on the street and people do find that confronting, you mm. know, but confronting that they're asking them for change and, you know, bringing that world into their world that they don't want to acknowledge is out there. Because yeah. I don't think there's anyone who thinks that like, you know, like, you know, most people I think in principle think that homelessness is a terrible thing. Yeah. But most people when they're in the street get annoyed by someone asking for change. So it's a, it's because we're protected from not seeing it every day, I think, you know. We don't have to – it's like, for example, uh, there was a massive uh, factory fire in Bangladesh mm. and uh, hundreds of workers who worked for tiny wages in really unsafe conditions were killed and a lot of the clothing is popular brands in Australia. You know, prop, cheap brands. Anytime you buy an $8 singlet – Chances are someone's making it in like a Bangladesh, you know, sweatshop. And, you know, we've by, we're not, you know, there's no protest outside the thing. We've just accepted that, okay, we're willing to live with that. It happens in Bangladesh and, you know, we assume that this big multinational are doing the right thing. And I guess if we think about it, we probably think they're not. How how can you make an eight dollar singlet and they can still make a profit unless somebody's getting screwed at some you know yeah. part of that? Of course. How can I have an iPod that you know a, a, a computer more powerful than the first rocket that went into space that I bought for less than six hundred dollars? That some twelve year old dug the minerals out of a mine. Right. That does not exist without someone else, yeah. you know, somewhere getting screwed by that. So we all live in that society, but it's very easy to, I think, when you're not in the middle of it, yeah. to for it to be sort of a theoretical idea, much I'm, like asylum seekers. On, on a simple level, much like you know, um, I'm a, I am a, like a hypocrite because I am against animal cruelty, yet I still eat meat. You know, I mean, I, I, I will not. It's not like I can watch the abattoir footage and go, okay, I'm still comfortable. I don't want to see the abattoir footage because no. it make me feel bad about eating meat, but I don't want to stop eating meat. Oh, well, how, <laughs> this is why I love these chairs so much because I decided when I went for vegetarian that I also could, couldn't – Eat leather. I have Doc Martin boots and I love them so much, but I've not bought a new pair of Doc Martins. In fact, the pair that I wear now were bought secondhand because right. my attitude is like I still want to wear those. Yeah. But I don't want to contribute right. to the direct. So I'm happy to buy secondhand leather. So you'd be an but accessory even, after the fact. Right. <laughs> happy to be the guy that they pass the goods on to. <laughs> I'm just not the guy who stole them in the first place. Um, but having found leather that was being thrown yeah. out, like, I mean, this is the perfect score for me. This was like. Yeah, you've done yeah. really well. So um, we, we actually probably should wrap this up in, in like you know in a little bit, and we haven't really even got to you know <laughs> out of my teens, out of your teens. So let's let's skip forward, and we'll talk again another time because the thing that I've realised already about doing these podcasts is you're going to need like eighteen hours recording. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's fun. Uh, so when you leave, so when you get back from the, the mission, yeah, what what are you inspired with then? What's what's going to happen? Well, I didn't know it at the time, and this may be naive, but. Generally, the guys who they selected for the Indian mission were the ones that they thought were good prospects to go into the priesthood. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't think of it when no. I was going through the whole process. No, you've been taken into some sort of AIS draft camp. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I came out of it and so there was a few obligations I had to do, like, you know, um, a community service. And you'd things. be the perfect one too because, like, you've gone over a bit yeah, doubtful totally, but come back man. really inspired. I was, like, I was, like, on the road to Damascus and yeah. I, I literally had my eyes opened. But um, 
I just saw a lot of kind of cynicism about people reacted cynically to what I had seen and what I experienced. And the reaction was generally that wouldn't work here. People, you know, it's okay for really poor people because they, you know, don't know what they're missing out on, but you can't get, you know, rich people because rich people want more. And maybe they were right, but I found that disheartening. <laughs> I think there is a real problem with um, uh, inequality of wealth. I oh, think that's for sure. But that's one of those things, and I joked about Russell Brand before, but despite, you know, um, like I think there is some naivety in what he said. I, I understand why it resonated with people because I think that that particularly the theme of inequality, like, you know, the, the, the disparate, massive disparate inequality, it does create those sort of things. I remember... When they're talking about the uh, so in Australia, our Prime Minister Tony Abbott has a, a, a he's going to have a paid parental leave scheme, mm. uh, and basically up until I, I think up to seventy thousand dollars, people when they get, get pregnant will be paid at the rate they're actually getting paid in their job, and you know that's a lot of money for. But someone wrote to the newspaper and said, "Well, rich people need more money because they have more costs," and they honestly think like that. You know, they actually think, "All oh, right." Like, I have more costs because I'm rich and I have all these expensive things that I have to... But that's a mindset, yeah. you know? So, uh, I just you don't decide to become a priest? No, I don't. I decide uh, not to become a priest. Um, and I kind of pretty much stopped going to church after that. Right. It was... Uh, it was just... Uh, I think that was the... I mean, I don't. I wonder know. if they just. They, and it, and I wonder if they talk and, about and you. By the way, as the one who got away. The, I'd like you. could have been the greatest of all time. It's not like, <laughs> and 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 um, it's not like I came back and I immediately started doing charity work myself because no. I was so inspired. I mean, I am just as culpable as everyone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. You but, were um, eating Indian food more regularly. Yeah, that was I, the, I did work at an Indian restaurant, funnily enough, <laughs> for, for one night until I broke a cork into someone's red wine and they sacked me. Oh, depressing. <laughs> you're like, I did charity work <laughs> in your country. Yeah, that's right. You guys own me. Um, yeah, I keep walking up to Indian families and just being like, huh? Uh, huh? Uh. <laughs> what do you reckon? I assume you've got a painting of me at your house, right? <laughs> Bring those tribes together. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so, so, what do you do then? What, what happens? Do, uh, well, so um, I just come back. I just go to uni. And, yeah. So, uh, so you went to uni I, to I, study acting? Uh, no, 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 to study. I wanted to be a director, so I, um, I went to. I did a media studies course at Rusden, which mm-hmm. is a university that no longer exists. Right. It's funny. I, uh, I had a choice between RMIT and Rusden. RMIT in my year, James Wan and Lee Winnell were in that. Uh, oh, uh, wow. I chose the other university. Oh. If I'd gone to RMIT, I would have been in the same year as uh, uh, those, you, those you two you very unsuccessful. The, the sweet saw empire. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, this is a great moment just to stop down because I always like to tell people, though, that Lee Winnell, who now is one of the richest men on the planet because yeah. of Saw, mostly. but He has Chesterfields all over his house. Oh, yeah. He probably threw these ones out. Yeah, that's right, from his jet. Yeah, <laughs> as he flew over Sydney. Yeah. Didn't even stop. Was just trying to get rid of furniture. <laughs> Uh, he uh, was also doing open mic stand-up comedy yeah, at the time. I heard that. Yeah. So he's also one of the. He's a very lovely guy. But it kind of. My point is more broadly that like this dude at one stage was probably going up on a Sunday at open mic stand-up comedy, going, "What is going on in my life?" Yeah. And now he's throwing away Chesterfield <laughs> from his private jet. From his private Sydney. jet. We imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I go to uni and. Uh, what I because uh, I, I follow Michael Michael Chamberlain does the same course so I sort of follow him there because he always had a bit more of an idea of what he wanted to do he was always much more he was the one who kind of 
he sort of he he was he really sort of cut a path in terms of individualism. Michael was always very much his own person, right? And at my school, saying I want to be a director was unheard of. Like no one, you you want to be you want to either work as a lawyer, doctor, or finance. They're they're the three options. Um, but you know, Michael was obsessed with movies and sort of got me obsessed with movies. And uh, then he said, I want to go learn how to make films, and so I'll do that as well. Um, and then when we got there, I kind of. I guess I dipped my toe into acting. The thing about me and acting is I never, it had never been at the forefront of my mind. Like I'd never, my brother is a drama teacher. You know, he used to go to the national theater all the time. I grew up with theater all around me, but I never thought it was going to be anything. I always liked writing. And then I thought I want to be a writer director. But then after three years of uni, I didn't, I sort of, I felt more directionless after that. I actually kind of wish I had, a, I had done a gap year because I, what I kind of felt is I went into uni with the same attitude of, a, I've got to do assignments. Right. It wasn't really what education's about, which is kind of finding, finding your thing and pursuing it. And I, but I think that also you probably went through in an era where that was changing in a mindset. And I think as a society, we've lost a little bit from this, which is now people think that going to university is about getting a job and ironically enough we've never lived in a society where that is less likely to be the case because people change profession and jobs so so many times now like the the idea that you're going to work for the rest of your life in the thing that you study at uni Mm. it's a ridiculous idea so why are we telling people this why are we making people feel like university is is about learning about this thing so you can get that job it should be about going to university and learning how to learn like learning to fall in love with the idea of learning because yeah. here's what you're going to have to do for the rest of your life to be successful at anything. Learn shit. Mm. You're going to have to learn new things. But here's the thing. I learned that I don't learn well right. learning at uni. <laughs> <laughs> what I learned is that um, I, could, I, I don't really do well in institutionalized learning. I do much better on the job because after right. after three years of studying film at uni, I, I didn't, feel like, didn't feel like I learned anything. And then... Six months after I left uni, I worked at a production company, like a commercial production company, just sort of stuffing around, but I would occasionally run on shoots and I learnt so much more in six months of actually being surrounded by actual directors and actual producers. And is that something that you have taken into everything that you do, like trying to actually just do it rather than... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's what acting was for me as well because I had sort of... I did like a year of drama at uni and... I hated it. I, I hated the kind of people who were attracted to drama. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? I have this. I had this theory that, you know, uh, you do a play in high school, you know, and it's maybe it's the first time you perform in front of an audience, and you hear that applause, and it's kind of like it's exhilarating. And then some people leave that, exp- and, and also doing a play is a very bonding experience, and you know, it's a very heightened world. You're very close, and you know, people hook up, and you know, and it's it's a great experience. But yeah. then I think what happens is people leave that experience like, oh. I want that to continue in my in my everyday life, and so they perform constantly, you know, or that's the way they try and engage. And I just what I, what I wanted was to be a normal person who acted professionally, right? But I didn't think I could because every actor I'd met up to that point had been really annoying in person. It's like, well, I don't want to be like that. I think that's really interesting though because I I wanted to be a comedian, but I didn't want to have to. Like be, be miserable guy. or be no both right. yeah be funny or be miserable yeah right. I just wanted to be a comedian as a job <laughs> yeah same well, and then the rest of the time I just want to relax and watch yeah. footy that's yeah that was my attitude as well and I and I thought I, it was a dream until I worked on a, a play 
um, with a mate of ours, Brett Tucker. And Brett, uh, who's a, an actor who's working in the States now, has always done very well. Yeah. Um, but he's, in fact, I might try to get him on this podcast. I think oh, he'd be good idea. on this. That's yeah. a really good idea. Yeah, he'd be good. Um, but he, uh, he, was, he was just this dude from Warburton, you know, the least likely place where you're going to get like a thespian from. And he went and studied for three years at the National Theatre in, in St Kilda and then just started acting. But when I met him, he was like a guy. <laughs> Right. You know, and we talked about football and we talked about girls and we just talked about normal stuff. And then he would get up and do his thing. And then aside from and that's not to say he wasn't dedicated to it. It's just that he didn't live performance, right? right. So when I met him, I was like, oh, geez, maybe I can do it. Well, I can do it without the fear of having to be, you know, the, the – and the irony is I'm an, an extroverted person. I, d- I do like entertaining people making them laugh, but I didn't want the – I didn't want to be perceived as that kind of thing, if you know what I mean. It's interesting, though. You, you, it, it, it seems to be a theme. Like at high school, you went to a like a school where it was all about being part of a community, and you didn't you you felt like I don't want to be part of that you know community. Like there's something about just I can't sign up to that, yeah. you know. And then with religion, you yeah, enjoyed being part of it. You enjoyed the social part of it, but, but you but when it me. was like the when but when it became all about an institution, you were like I don't feel comfortable with the idea of the yeah, you know, being this. And like you liked the idea of acting, and be, but you didn't want to be like seen as like an actor, yeah, yeah, you know, part of acting. Well, I guess it's I guess it's don't want to be boxed as anything. That's yeah. I guess maybe that is my philosophy <laughs> is that I um I I'm, I try to avoid uh, def- uh tags. Yeah, I don't I don't perceive myself as being any one thing. I think it's crazy to say that you know this is the kind of these are my these are the ABCs of me, baby. Like I don't. I don't have that. That would be a great way to say it, though. If you said it like that. <laughs> Maybe you should rename the show. Yeah, the ABCs of me, baby. Of Will. <laughs> uh, the W-I-L of Will. Oh, no, no, no. So I, 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 um, let's, we, we won't linger in the middle because we can talk about okay. that another time. I want to talk about what's going on now because we haven't really uh, seen each other much this year. Like yeah. For two people who used to kind of like, you know, hang out all the time, but because of you know, our careers being in different places and us being in different places, yeah. like we've literally only caught up a couple of times this year. So yeah. what's, where are you at? Like where's, so, where's your life at? So I'm a year into uh, my contract with Home and Away. And you're uh, having a good time. It's, every time I I'm, see you, you seem to be enjoying it. I'm loving it. it. It's really, it's actually, I mean, it does tie in nicely to everything we've been talking about because, um, you know, when the opportunity came up, I'd, I'd sort of had opportunities to do Home and Away in the past and had balked at the idea of three years because it seems like a long time. Yeah. But I'm at a point in my life where, you know, my girlfriend's settled here with a career. I need the money. A bit of stability right now would be really good. And I took it with- Which I also think is interesting. Like uh, your football club has uh, just appointed a new coach. Yeah. And he went for that same job two years ago. Yeah. But sometimes you need to wait. You know, sometimes it's not the right time. It might be the right job. Yeah. It might be the right opportunity, but it's not right right now. Yeah. And people sometimes forget that. It's not as much- I mean, obviously, it's about you know doing the thing that you want to do, but it's also about being ready mm. and willing and able to throw yourself into that thing. Yeah, well, I guess because I had sort of it's not like I had checked out of acting, but I'd gotten to an age where I just wasn't getting roles, right. and it had been explained to me by my manager that I was at a weird that there is an age that guys get to where you're too old to play the love too old to play young guy and. Yep not old enough to be the cop or the lawyer or whatever. The president. So I guess that was me in my late 20s. And, you know, maybe it's like I just wasn't good enough. That could also be the case. But I had sort of in my mind gone, okay, well, I'm now doing this other stuff, which is the writing and the producing and even, you know, starting the podcast. 
So I was quite comfortable with if I never work again. And then this came along and my expectation was only like, okay, some stability, some money, great. But it has so far exceeded all the things I was hoping to get out of it. Like I just think it, it's such a great environment. I can see why it has been such a stepladder for Chris Hemsworth, Ryan Quantin, Melissa George. Like I can see it because it is the nicest environment. It's the most supportive, encouraging environment for a young actor or even an old actor like me to come into. Like I just, because I'd never studied acting and uh, I'd always felt maybe that, that was, I'd always felt self-conscious about that. When I started this job, I was like, okay, university course goes for three years. Hopefully I'll get three years on this show. So I'm going, I'm going back to school. I'm going to learn how to act again. They have this great drama coach there, Genevieve Hegney, who's an actress in her own right. But um, she's around to coach the actors, mainly for the younger guys, the more inexperienced ones. But I sort of went and said, hey, would you mind if... Now, was that... Uh, so, but some people listening to this would be like afraid to ask. You know, you get to a point where you're meant to know something and you're afraid to ask. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, you know, I confront because I want to ask all the time, but sometimes I... I'm embarrassed that I, you know, don't know, don't know. or whatever. Yeah. Was that a confronting thing for you to do that? Or were you just um, like, I've, I've made a decision. I'm going to throw myself into this. 100%. I, guess I, I guess it was more like I had nothing to lose. Yeah. Like, I mean, I have a great opportunity in front of me right now. If I don't get any better then well, you know, right. Maybe this is not the path for me, but there is an opportunity to get better. So what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to be there anyway. Um, Right, uh, like it, like I ha- you're in prison anyway. Might as well get your law degree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't. Uh, mean, I don't. No, mean no, no, no. Like, but it is that thing of. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about the show is that people. I mean, there's people who've been working on the show, have been working on it pretty much since it started, and they've all changed jobs. Like people start in front of the camera and right. they go behind the camera. People have started behind the camera and got in front of the, like. It's it's amazing, and the doors are open, so it's not just. You know the acting, but I love being. I mean, they people. The office always joke that I spend more time in the office hanging out with them than I do on set because I'm interested in how a TV show is made, and I want to learn how it's made. And so I set in on plotting meetings, and you know, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and sort of uh, see and learn as much as I can while I'm up there because I don't know. How, it's a very successful show. That doesn't happen by accident. You don't get very many. Like I couldn't ring up home and away and say, "Hey." Can I come out and hang out in your office to learn you how to make what? a television show? You know what? They're so nice. I'm sure, they probably, <laughs> I'm sure they probably might. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example. Yeah. You'll be like, why is Will hanging well, out in the I office? I, your point being that I have a, a rare opportunity to, you know. To soak it all up. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so that's what I feel like I'm doing. I mean, uh, the acting, it sounds crazy, but the acting, what I'm actually doing, seems to be the bonus. Yeah. Everything else like, is like what I'm, I'm, I'm absorbing. And then... I forget, like I wake up some mornings like laughing going, I get to go out to a beautiful beach and just make believe for like right. half a day and I get paid for it. Like it's ridiculous. Like it, it, I'm in such a ridiculously fortunate position like that I'm just trying to not only soak up every second, but I'm, I, want, I want this to be, I want, I want to go somewhere from here. You know what I mean? Like it'd be a waste of an opportunity not to be doing something based off this because it's, it's, you know, if, if you follow that philosophy of new experiences, then I'm having new experiences every day because the plots keep changing. They keep bringing guest actors, new directors, you know, it's a constantly changing environment. So for someone like me, it's, it's, it's a perfect, 
that is what I say when I, I'm not an institutional learner. I learn on the job because the job keeps changing. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Uh, look, uh, I wanted to talk about your film and I wanted to talk about <laughs> other things, but you know what? We'll just we'll, we'll chat another time yeah, because no I feel like you know we've uh, done two hours, so that's probably <laughs> enough for people. And Ramona seems to be telling yeah. us to wrap it up. So, uh, Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. No worries. 